Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Nathan. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. And we also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today, we are on day 21. So, I don't know, exciting times. We're getting, we're getting through it. We're getting into the months. 21. <laughs> what's, what, dang it, what's that, what's the setup to the vine? Uh, what's 16 plus, is it 16 plus three or something? Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, 21. Listeners, I know you miss Vine, so that was you know that was a, just the peak of the internet right there, and then they took it away from us. Uh, but if you if you miss Vine, or if you have questions that you want to email in, uh, make sure to send them to info at grove church, or you can direct message our Grove Church Facebook page or our Instagram page. Uh, just make sure to specify that it's a let's read the, let's read the Bible podcast question. Otherwise, we might not we might not get it. The powers that be might not send them to us, and that would just be a huge bummer. Uh, well, Nathan, welcome, welcome back Thank to the you. podcast. You were on it last year. Uh, you were on it once, supposed to be twice, and yes. then I and then I failed, and Aaron had to do a podcast by himself because I gave you guys the wrong week to prep for. So. I, I did study for that whole week, so I was tracking with that episode of of Let's Read the Bible just a a week late. Just a yeah. That's that's my that's my sin against you, but you've forgiven me, so we're good there. Uh, but yeah, Nathan is uh, the production director here at the Grove Church, so me and him work together a lot on the the media side of things with cameras and other and other fun things like that. He also does audio engineering, which I know nothing about, so he just tells me what DB levels things need to be at, and I, and I listen and I obey. So, but Nathan's also a big Bible nerd. On anything else you want the the people to know about you? Oh well, just before because we worked together on this, um, all of you listeners missed out. Just before we started this podcast, we had like I don't know a seven minute discussion on on various forms of locking cables for yep. camera wire. So normalize you know. it. Like why why don't more more cables fasten? Instead yep. of just being loose, and then someone walks by and unplugs them. And yeah, it's just a it's a whole mess. So. I know if you've ever wondered what it's like to be a fly on the wall before we start recording, these are the exciting conversations that you miss. VGA oh, cables. VGA, uh, great cable. I mean, uh, well, great fastener, not a great cable anymore. So we, it's, it's left in the past. And you know what else is in the past? The Old Testament. Let's start talking about <laughs> it. We left on a bit of a cliffhanger last week. So Joseph had interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. Uh, and he asked the cupbearer to remember him, and then, uh, and then he didn't. So the cupbearer's kind of uh, the cupbearer's kind of a jerk. What are you going to do? You know who did? You know who was asked to remember someone and actually did? Uh, Jesus on the cross. So Jesus is the better cupbearer. In case you're in case you're curious about that, that's how those can connect. But at least we think so. I guess we're not. It's never confirmed that Jesus remembered the thief on the cross. But I feel like it's it's implicit in the text that you know Jesus wouldn't forget about him. Not confirmed yet, but you know. yeah, that's true. When we get to heaven, we'll know, <laughs> and, then, and then we'll know for sure that Jesus is the better cupbearer. There you go. Uh, so two years would pass by with Joseph still in prison, and then Pharaoh would have two dreams that need interpreting. So Pharaoh sees uh, in his dreams he sees seven healthy, fattened cows grazing along the Nile. And then he sees seven ugly thin cows come up and consume all of the healthy cows. Uh, and then it, it's kind of implied that he wakes up and then he goes back to sleep. And then he sees seven healthy ears of grain that are then swallowed up by seven thin and weak ears of grain. So there you go. Some translations say corn. Fun fact, corn is just a word that means the most common grain product in a place. So No way. Yeah. So it's maize is what our corn is, but it was called corn because it was the most common grain crop in America or in the, at least when the, 
uh, when the settlers came over. So there you go. There, there's a fun fact to impress your friends, listeners, at, at, at your, your next cocktail party. You can tell them about your corn fun fact. They'll be super impressed. Oh yeah, for sure. Everyone, everyone loves it when I share those fun facts, for sure. No one's annoyed. Uh, okay, so Pharaoh asks for an interpretation from the soothsayers and the wise men, and, and they've got nothing. And then it's at this moment that the cupbearer's like, wait a second, someone who can interpret dreams... And then he goes before Pharaoh and he's like, Bas- I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's almost like the bless me father for I have sinned. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm so sorry. This guy told me to remember him and I totally <laughs> forgot, but, but he, can, he can do dreams. And so Pharaoh uh, calls for Joseph and he's quickly bathed and shaved, uh, which rhymes. And then he is brought before Pharaoh. So Pharaoh asks Joseph if he can interpret dreams. And Joseph is once again quick to give credit to God alone. So Joseph's like, no, it's not my gift. God just, you know, God has all dreams. And so he, if he'll tell me the meaning, I can tell you. And so Pharaoh's like, all righty. So he gives him, he tells him the dreams. And Joseph lets Pharaoh know that it means that Egypt is about to have seven years of an incredibly plentiful harvest, a great harvest. They can get as much as they want. But that's going to be followed by seven years of horrible famine. And so Joseph's advice is to find someone that Pharaoh trusts to put in charge and to make sure that there is enough food set aside during the seven good years so that Egypt can survive the famine. So basically, don't just get fat and happy. Make sure that you're setting aside a percentage of everything. Make sure you're growing extra crops, all these different things. And then when the seven years of famine come, you'll have everything in the storehouses and you know Egypt can actually survive. Pharaoh agrees. He's like, hey, that's a smart plan. And he can't think of anyone he'd rather trust than Joseph because, you know, if God is going to reveal to him the, what's happening in the future, he's like, that seems like a good guy to have on my side. So at 30 years old, Joseph is now the second most powerful man in Egypt, which is, which is pretty crazy. So he, and he gets to work. So I don't know, man, that's a meteoric rise. He goes from being sold into slavery. Uh, he's one of the higher up slaves, it seems like in Potiphar's house, but then obviously everything goes down with Potiphar's wife. And then after being in prison, probably expecting that he's going to be in there for most of the rest of his life. And now all of a sudden, only Pharaoh is more powerful than Joseph. Only Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the only one who can tell Joseph what to do. Everyone else, they're listening to Joseph. So crazy stuff. Uh, As the chapter goes on, we get kind of the cliff notes of those first seven years. If this was a movie, it would be a montage. And, you know, everyone would be smiling and they'd be harvesting and Joseph would be pointing and all that stuff would be happening. Uh, but Joseph is very good at what he does. So he sets aside food the entire time. And he marries an Egyptian woman named As- uh, As- 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 Aseneth. Aseneth? Uh, I mean, what are you going to do? I should have watched. I actually watched just because I was reliving my childhood. I watched some Joseph King of Dreams, <laughs> like, the, nice. like some clips, but I don't think they ever said her name. So I wasn't thinking of a way to pronounce it, but there you go. I was once, actually, I think it might've been on the last podcast here. I didn't know how to pronounce the name and I went on to Google and it tells you, you know, in that really generic voice, like it's this, it's oh, yeah. this name. And it turns out uh, Google completely led me astray and I ended up butchering the name anyways. So, you know, you can never really... You can never really know. Somebody's always going to tell you. That's true. I trust Google with modern languages, but like ancient Hebrews probably. I don't. <laughs> a little different. I don't blame him for not knowing. I said him as if Google's a person, but I, I don't blame it. Hey, what are you going to do? Google's a person too. Google's alive. We That's love, not true. We love Google. Google would never hurt us. So just, <laughs> just in case, in case Google's listening right now. Anyway, uh, so Joseph marries an Egyptian woman. And they have two sons together, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. So there you go. Joseph's living his best life. Uh, Eventually, after seven years, the famine begins. And so Joseph begins to sell the grain of Pharaoh back to the people as they have need. I feel like this is one of those things that gets 
we don't talk about it in Sunday school. Uh, like it's kind of presented as Joseph just set aside all the grain and then he starts giving it to the people. No, Pharaoh's making money on this venture. And so I think in your chapters, it even gets a little bit more intense. So yeah. I, I won't spoil that. But uh, all, all that to say, this is not like necessarily the most generous thing that Pharaoh is doing. This He's, isn't a charity. No, <laughs> listen, Pharaoh don't run no charity. So uh, they're selling grain back to the Back to the people. Eventually, the famine is not just in Egypt. It's up in Canaan as well. And so Jacob's family is struggling to eat. And so Jacob sends 10 of his 11 remaining sons to go to Egypt and to buy grain. So this would be every son except for Benjamin, who is the other son of Rachel. And um, in Jacob's mind, the only surviving son of Rachel as well. So the other 10, though, they head down. Uh, when they arrive in Egypt, they do not recognize Joseph. And this is probably due to like, he he probably has like a shaved head and is looking fully Egyptian at this point. So it makes sense that they don't, they don't recognize him. Uh, but Joseph obviously recognizes his brothers, which leads to Joseph kind of, he's trying to like kind of spy out and covertly see how his family is doing. Uh, and so there's a like, hey, who are you? And they're like, hey, yeah, there's 10 of us. And like, we have another brother. And Joseph's like, is your father? Is he alive? Maybe? And they're like, yeah, Joseph, Jacob's alive. And so yeah, he's kind of just like trying to find all this stuff out. Uh, eventually, Joseph makes his brothers go back and bring Benjamin back to him, uh, which makes sense. I mean, Joseph is, Benjamin is Joseph's only full brother. Uh, so there is probably a little bit of a deeper connection there as well. Wants to see him again. And Joseph holds Simeon as a hostage. So I don't know. In the text, I don't think it really specifies which brother was like the ringleader of the, hey, let's sell Joseph. It wasn't Reuben. So I wonder if Simeon was maybe like the big, the, the main guns. I don't know. So, or I'm just reading something into it. So Joseph is picking on him? Yeah. Or I guess, it, or I guess in fairness, Simeon is the eldest brother who didn't want to save him. So if we take Reuben out of it, sure. Simeon would be the next one. So maybe that's what's going on. Does it matter? Not really. I just, these are just the things that pop into my head of like, why Joseph choose Simeon? Why, why, why that brother? So anyway, uh, but he sends them back with grain to give to Jacob. So, so he's not being, he's not being a jerk. He's like, yeah, take this grain. You can I mean, go back, but I want, well, that's true. He's not, he could have been a bigger jerk. Yeah. He could have been like, you get nothing. Now go back and bring back Benjamin. Uh, and so he says, yeah, here's grain. Go back, bring back Benjamin. When you do, I'll give you Simeon. So there you go. Uh, and then he also gives a little gift for each of them. So he, imagine them with big sacks of grain. Uh, and this is Genesis chapter 42, verses 35 through 38. It says, now it came about as they, this being the brothers, uh, were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bag of money uh, was in his sack. So the money that they used to buy the grain was returned to them. And when they and their father saw their bags of money, they were afraid. And their father, Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my sons. Joseph is gone and Simeon is gone. And now you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. I mean, on the one hand, noble of Reuben. On the other hand, like, you know, you could have just offered yourself. You it's a little harsh. You don't have to. Oh yeah. My kids take him, take him out. <laughs> but I mean, it shows the culture back then. Yeah. It's kind of like they're, they're much more flippant with that sort of thing. Uh, and then verse 38, but Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should happen to him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. So basically Jacob is saying, if something happened to Benjamin, I would just die from grief at that mm -hmm. point. So he doesn't want that to happen. So obviously Nathan, um, they're not going to go back, right? Uh, no, no, okay. definitely not. That's actually the end. Oh, um, well, the see end you all next week. It was good. Uh, it was good. Listening to Evan talk. Uh, no, we, we continue on into Genesis chapter 43. 
um, and kind of just remembering all of the things that that have happened. Um, there's a lot that happened in 42, um, 41 and 42. Um, but basically, the sons of Israel have returned to him with some food and some confusion um, with the with the money being in their sacks. They just had this run in with um, a leader of Egypt who started picking on their family and they don't really know why. Um, and to add on top of that, Simeon is being held in Egypt um, until they return with Benjamin. Uh, yeah, and that's where we pick up in chapter 43. Uh, this is verses 1 through 9. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly. You will not see my face again until your brother is with you. Um, if you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man that you had another brother? And they replied, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and about our family. Um, and is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. Um, how were, sorry, sorry about that. How were we to know, um, he would say, bring your brother down here. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once um, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all of my life. Um, now, at this point in the story, you can really start to sense um, the hesitation, one, of Israel to send Benjamin, um, and partially for good reason. The last uh, visit to Egypt went extremely weird, and they were all missing a brother already. Um, but you also start to sense this, sense this favoritism coming from Jacob, um, which is what got them here in the first place. Remember, Joseph was sent to Egypt um, into slavery at first because of the bitterness of his brothers, because of the favoritism of his father. So there's clearly some tension around this topic already. Um, and it's something that seems to be an issue with the sons of Abraham. I remember Joseph was sold into slavery because of his brothers who were so bitter towards him because of the favoritism of Jacob. Um, he is Jacob's favorite son because Rachel was his favorite wife. He met Rachel because he had to run from home for stealing a blessing, which he did because of the favoritism between Isaac and Rebecca. Um, and it's easy to assume that Isaac learned those behaviors because he was the favorite son of Abraham, right? It's pretty easy to say he was the favorite because he wasn't sent off into the wilderness to go die, basically. Yeah. So, unlike his older brother. So it's pretty tough. And you can track like all of the tensions, even um even today, the uh the religious and political tensions between Israel and the surrounding nations can be traced back to who they believe should have gotten the blessing, right. Isaac and or um Ishmael. So favoritism is just kind of this theme. And like you said before, and we kind of talked about this, um, they were more flippant with their children. So it's easy to read our own culture and our understanding of parenting into this and being like, wow, they were the worst. Um, and you shouldn't necessarily do that. But clearly it is causing some issues within this family. And that's why um, that's why Joseph was in Egypt in the first place. Um, so it's really hard to ignore the pain that it's causing this family. Um, so we continue on um, with, with that kind of in mind. The rest of these chapters, the brothers go back to Egypt 
Um, Joseph is moved to see his uh, brother Benjamin alive. So they convinced Israel to let them take Benjamin and go back. Um, And Joseph gives favor uh, to Benjamin over the other brothers. Dangerous move, if you ask me. He saw what happened last time, Um, but he still chooses to give them favor. Um, And Joseph uh, does some more scheming. And this whole whole, uh, interaction between Joseph and his brother, um, it makes you ask the question, like, what is he up to? He, you know, he, you get this picture of him just sitting there selling grain. And then all of a sudden his brothers show up and his immediate reaction isn't like, oh, this is kind of weird. These are my brothers. It's like, you're spies. Like you're here to do this. And he starts questioning them intently. I was going to say, yeah. Do you interpret it as, because I think there's two ways you can have it. It's either Joseph wants to be mean to his brothers as revenge and then changes his mind. Or is it the whole thing? He's just trying to get his family kind of back together. Like, I don't know. How do you you view it? I actually wrote a note on this and listen, Joseph is, is a good guy, but he's still a man. And I would find it really hard to believe that he didn't get some amount of satisfaction with like just terrifying his treacherous brothers who sold him into slavery in the first place. At the same time, I bet you he got a little bit of joy in like, them finding out that he rose to the top of Egypt and he's like, ha ha, even though his reaction is actually good and we'll get to that later, but the spoilers, um, whoa. but yeah, I, it's, it's both. And I mean, the, the fact that, um, Israel's sons mention, he's like, they, he questioned us intently about our family. Like he's clearly trying to get at something. And I think the, the narrative that we're reading, um, is supposed to cause us to ask that question. I was like, okay, he's kind of being weird, but what is he after? Um, Yeah, and that's the end of uh, Old Testament, day two. Day two. All right, well, jumping into day three. uh, Yeah, we, we, Joseph basically, it's, it's, there's this really powerful moment where eventually with his brothers, uh, we, you know, we get the whole interaction of Joseph places uh, a cup into one of the sacks. And again, like Nate's saying, what, what on earth is he up to here? Uh, The cup is found with Benjamin. And so there's this really interesting moment where Judah is the one who steps forward and is willing to offer himself as essentially the sacrifice in place of his brother, Benjamin. So originally when they get found, they promise, hey, if you find this cup with any of us, that one is going to die. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of us will be slaves to you, which is funny because we talked about it last week, but you know, stop making, stop promising to kill people (laughs) that that never goes, that never goes the way you think it's going to go. It's just last last week we talked about it where Jacob promises it when Rachel had stolen something. Uh, eventually it faces its like its worst fears and when we get to the story of Jephthah in Judges, but it's just a whole it's just a whole thing. Stop promising to do that. But anyway, uh, Joseph is, you know, he promises, hey, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna kill him. I'm just gonna take one of you as slaves, and it's just gonna be the one who stole the cup. The rest of you can go, it's fine. And so Joseph, in that moment, it's funny because from the perspective of if the, if the brothers actually think that this happened, that's an incredibly merciful thing to do because they think Benjamin's going to die and they think we can't even go back home at this point. Yeah. Like it's better, it, it's probably better just to never go back to Jacob at that point. Um, but it's just slavery. And so at that moment, Judah steps up and he says, no, please take me. And, and I, and I think this is the moment that if Joseph changes his mind, this is what changes his mind. Um, if he was kind of just planning the whole big thing there as well, that's what's happening here. Um, but at this point, Joseph, I mean, loses it. So he sends out, he sends out everyone who is in the room 
And it's a it's a really powerful moment that's coming up. Uh, it makes me wonder, do you think, um, you know, clearly Joseph is digging around. He first uh, sends them back and asks them to bring Benjamin. And then he's um, he's sending them back and, and he eventually wants Israel to come. Uh, it makes you wonder, would he have blessed um, the brothers if this change wouldn't have happened, if they wouldn't have brought Benjamin back, if Israel wasn't involved? Do you think that he would have still provided for his brothers or do you think he would have just continued on the separation between them? I think he would have continued on. Yeah. I don't, cause I, yeah, I don't, th- I don't think he would have made his way up to Canaan and like, kind of like, Hey, where are you? You know what I mean? I think he was waiting for them to come back. Sure. I also wonder, I mean, I do, I do wonder if he's testing the brothers here and trying to see if they'll, if they'll stand up, I guess, yeah. for their brother here. Cause I think he clearly knows that Benjamin's the favorite. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine I don't think Jacob learned any lessons with the Joseph thing. So I'd imagine the favoritism that Joseph got was probably honestly even more intense with Benjamin mm. because now it's it's not only that he's the son of his favorite wife, it's now he's the last son of his favorite wife. Um, and so I, I wonder if Joseph here is trying to see if his brothers will still do the wicked thing. And But that's the hard thing though, because it's not wicked. It's like... Yeah, I don't know. It's true. It's honest, and uh, and um, he's basically just doing his job to a certain extent. Um, but you also have to wonder. It was it was early um, earlier in the chapters. Uh, the the brothers not knowing that Joseph spoke their language were talking amongst themselves, and are like, true. "All this crazy stuff is happening because we we betrayed Joseph." So he clearly knows to some extent that they feel the weight of their guilt from what they had done and the shame from it. No, that's a good point. Yeah, it's all. Uh, it, I could, I mean, yeah, we could just camp out and talk yeah. about this scene for like the entirety of the podcast. There's, there's so many layers to what's going on here. Um, but essentially, yeah. So Joseph, he sends everyone away except for the brothers. And that's when he reveals himself. So he says, I, I am Joseph, your brother. Um, it says that he weeps so loudly that the servants who he sent out of the house still hear him weeping. And then Pharaoh hears of it. So basically some of the servants go to Pharaoh and like, Hey, like something up, something's up with your guy. <laughs> like you might want to, you might want to go check on him. And so. Um, and I don't think it's like, it's not sad tears. It's happy tears of th- just this moment. And I think Joseph, I think Joseph is overcome with the idea of when, when his brothers sold him into slavery, that was a wicked thing. Um, if his brothers would have let Benjamin stay as a slave, that would have been just. Um, and so this here is not even, it's not even them necessarily doing the, the right thing or right thing's the wrong way to phrase it. It's not them doing the just thing. It's them doing the merciful thing. And in this moment, Judah is under no obligation, I guess, except for the promise he made to Jacob, but he's under like no higher moral obligation to stand in the place of Benjamin. He's not the one who stole the cup. Benjamin's the one who, you know, quote unquote, stole the cup. Um, but he still steps up to show mercy in that moment. It's, it's incredibly powerful. And you have to realize that like Joseph has had a long time to think about all of this too. It's not like he saw his brothers for the first time and right. then he was like, oh my goodness, this is why God did all of these things. Maybe he didn't realize that it was saving his brothers um, and his family, but I'm sure when Joseph started rising and receiving favor in Egypt, he had time to think and process about what God was doing in his life. Yeah. It's kind of like the opposite of the Count of Monte Cristo where he spends a lot of time away and instead of instead of getting more and more revenge spilled, he's just like, ah, maybe, maybe it's going to be okay. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, so in this moment where no one would have blamed Joseph for being incredibly angry, uh, he instead shows an incredible amount mm-hmm. of mercy. So this is Genesis 45, starting in verse three. And it says, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And boy, that's a really powerful question right there as well. Um, but his brothers could not answer, answer for him, for they were terrified in his presence. 
Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold in Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me ahead of you to save lives. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So God sent me ahead of you to ensure for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive by deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his household and ruler over all of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. For you shall live in the land of Goshen and there you shall be near me you and your children, your grandchildren, and the flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. There are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. So yeah, it's just like, I, I, I love that. It also makes me think, I never thought about this until I read just now when he says, I'm a father to Pharaoh. That makes me wonder how old Pharaoh is. Like, I wonder if Pharaoh's like, Uh-oh. I wonder if Pharaoh's like a boy. <laughs> like, but anyway, that's a whole, that's a whole hmm. other thing, but he's got to be old enough to Anyway, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if Pharaoh's like a teenager or something. Anyway, sorry, that's just a total random thought that just popped into yeah. my head. Um, I, I, I love this moment. Hey, I, lo- I love the, just the idea of asking, is my father still alive? Mm-hmm. Um, because you can see clearly that Joseph wants to see his father again. And he knows that the time's short. It's not, mm-hmm. like J- Jason Jacob is not going to live forever. And then also just the, it's completely understandable here that the brothers are terrified yeah. of what Joseph could do. And so the idea that in this moment he would show them nothing but mercy is just, it's, it's one of the most powerful shadows of the gospel that we get mm. in the Old Testament before we actually see Jesus fulfill this ultimately. Yeah, it's almost like uh, Joseph the whole time had this question like welling up inside of him. You saw him already break and become really emotional when he saw his brother Benjamin. Um, and then finally when he's about to reveal all of it the first thing he says is like is my father alive it's yeah and you can kind of start to see like all the all the weird things that he's been doing has had a motivation behind it yeah gosh i love this story so much it's so good (laughs) um so after pharaoh hears about this he sends the brothers back with wagons so it's not just a foot journey anymore he's like no take these things it's going to make the journey way easier so pharaoh's a good guy um, and then he promises that they will be given the best land in Egypt. And so the brothers make their way back to Canaan where Jacob is overjoyed to found out, to find out that Joseph is alive. Uh, God then gives jo- Jacob a vision telling him that it's okay to move to Egypt and the whole family packs up and they move down. So after this, we get a list of the sons of Jacob, including the grandsons who move, who moved to Egypt. Um, there's not a ton to know. I did think it was funny that Dan is the only brother with one son. So like Dan. all like classic, I mean, Dan's kind of the black sheep of the family Ooh. anyway. Cause uh, I mean, not Dan, the person, Dan, the tribe. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. Dan, the tribe is, uh, they're just a bunch of apostates who live up North and any, <laughs> and anytime it's like, Hey, you want to worship false gods? Dan is always the first tribe to be like, let's do it. So, but that that's, we're getting ahead of ourselves listeners anyway. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was, I don't know if it means he had a bunch of daughters and only one son, or if he just only had one son, but there you go. I guess Judah has some sons, but half of them died because of the whole uh, yeah. Tamar situation. But that's, we talked about that last week. A lot of things can happen to your sons uh, back then. Yeah, we're going to move on to chapter 47. 47. Israel and his whole family have come to Egypt to seek refuge from the famine um, and to be with Joseph. Um, and this first part of this chapter is actually a really heartwarming story. Um, And I always love to read this. This is Genesis 47, verses 1 through 6. 
Um, Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. Goshen? I say Goshen, but you Goshen. Know, who all knows? Right. We'll, we'll go with Goshen for the bad guy. Hey, you say whatever you want. All right. All right. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, he chose five of his brothers and presented him, them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? Um, your servants are shepherds, they replied, um, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because of the famine. It's severe in the land of Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pastures. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. We'll go with that one. Sure. Um, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I love this part. Um, Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. Goshen. Um, and if you know any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Um, the first thing I notice when reading this is just how warm the relationship is between Pharaoh and Joseph. Um, Pharaoh is happy to have uh, Israel's family and gives them the best land available. Um, to settle in, puts them in charge of his own flock, which is a huge honor. And I'm sure there's like a, a measure of this that it's like, well, Joseph came here and and he's completely blessed all of my um, properties. So so trusting his family was probably a little bit easier. Um, but it is a testament to how important Joseph was to him. Um, and this is something that we miss out on, I feel like, in our understanding of Egypt, because we have, you know, for good reason for things to come in the future. Yep. We have a harsh understanding of um, of Egyptians and especially Pharaoh. Yeah, it's funny because like Egypt kind of starts out. I'm go going to the exiles. What I'm thinking about, uh, Persia is the is the nation that is really chill with Israel, and the kings of Persia get along great. Yeah. and then but and Babylon's kind of the evil one, especially Assyria. Um, you see Egypt kind of start as Persia, and then we'll when we get to Exodus, yeah. we'll see that obviously it doesn't say the same, but they they almost go they they start as Persia and become Babylon, which is kind of interesting. It's almost the inverse of what happens in the exile where things start really harsh and then eventually they get more lax. Yeah. Yeah. We don't usually think of Israel going to Egypt as a place of refuge and this really warm, loving relationship between um, Pharaoh and Joseph. And like, it's even weird to think of a Pharaoh being loving, I don't know, in my, in my mindset right. um, currently. So it is really heartwarming to see this happen. Um, the rest of chapter 47, um, Israel's family thrives. Um, uh, it's really interesting to note that um, it seems like, obviously, because of God's blessing, everywhere Israel goes, um, he is blessed. You see him, he originally went to his, his father-in-law's house in desperation, and uh, he ended up acquiring an entire family and flocks and herds, and um, it, it kind of took it away from his father-in-law. Now he's going to Egypt in desperation, um, and you see uh, him continuously being blessed with the with the best um, place for those flocks and those herds. However, you do see the Egyptians suffering. The The famine is still there and it's still very difficult. Um, uh, and it gets to the point where um, Egypt, I just lost my place in my notes. Uh-oh. Sorry. Where, where did we go? Um, yeah. So uh, the Egyptian population really struggles in order to get food. Um, they end up giving all of their money to Joseph, selling all of their belongings, their herds, their land, and then eventually sell themselves to Pharaoh as slaves just in order for them um, to have food. Um, and that brings up just one point of tension that's easy for us to, to kind of glaze over is you're asking the question, is there some bitterness between Israel and um, and the Egyptians that are there. You see this 
the oh. new guys on the block coming in and getting all of this land and all of this blessing while the Egyptians really struggle. Um, yeah, um, it goes it goes a little Stalin-y <laughs> and therefore all of a yeah. sudden it's like just like, uh, I own everything now. Yes. It's just the collective. Yeah. Yeah, and on on one hand, it's like it's it's probably God's continued blessing on Joseph. He's making Joseph's plan thrive, and you know Pharaoh is reaping the benefits of it. He's getting all of the land and all of the people and all of the flocks. Um, but it is a little, you know, it's a little alarming. And it's it, it is kind of one of those things where you have to be careful not to read in modern politics, I guess, sure. too much because obviously the world is very different. Where uh, it was nothing but absolute monarchies and dictatorships yeah, at yeah, this yeah. point, and so the yeah, it's the way people viewed themselves is is a little bit different. It's true, and funny enough, this is a huge side note, but I've had these little shorts come up on YouTube of like it's really it's a little dark, but it's like uh, ancient punishments for crimes. Oh, um, and if you dive into the the nation of Egypt, they're actually like pretty tame and humane. And again, we're just like used to thinking of them as this really harsh population, but. Um, they, they were firm believers in the, the punishment fits the crime and, um, they actually treated their people really well. So yes, even though it is scary that like Pharaoh owns everything and obviously it doesn't go well in the future. Um, it's not so bad yeah, you keep in that the, context. You keep the Jews as slaves for a few centuries one time. Yeah. Sudden, one time. All of a sudden you're uh, labeled for life. Geez. Egypt just has the bad rap. What are you going to do? Yeah. Um, that concludes chapter 47. We then move to chapter eight, chapter 48. Um, 48 is a curious chapter. Uh, Israel is dying and he calls Joseph in to give him his blessing. Instead of giving the blessing directly to Joseph, he instead gives it to both of Joseph's sons, adopting them as his own and even comparing Joseph's sons to Israel's firstborn sons, Reuben and Judah. And this is flipping this tradition of the blessing always going to the first son um, on its head in multiple ways. Not only is he giving essentially a double portion to Joseph instead of to his firstborn son by giving the blessing to both of Joseph's sons. Um, but then when he goes to bless Joseph's sons, he, against Joseph's will, um, actually switches his hands. He gives the right hand blessing or the larger blessing to Joseph's um, younger son and the smaller blessing to um, his older son. And um, there's not a lot of explanation given as to why he chose to do it, but it's, yeah. a, it's a really curious um, habit of all of the patriarchs that it's just like the whole way through the blessing continues to go to um, the youngest. You look like you're. No, yeah, I was just thinking about because I was thinking that it started with Jacob and Esau, but I realized, yeah, Isaac is the younger son. So, yeah, yeah, it's all of the all of the patriarchs bless their younger sons, whether intentionally or unintentionally. In the case of uh, Isaac, I suppose, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it is a really interesting thing. And again, there's like there's not a whole lot of. Um, uh, of explanation as to why this is the way it is, but it is something that continues to set um, the the family of Abraham, the family of, family of Israel, um, apart from the rest of the nations. And I think that's just an interesting, um, interesting thing. No, for sure. Yeah. Um, in closing, my part of the story of of Israel or Jacob, um, I can't help but focus on the f- the the brokenness of this family the the favoritism the the bitterness the division and the pain um and all of this was a catalyst that god used to bless them beyond their wildest hopes um so many things in the story are upside down not just the blessings but um you know people getting people getting uh <laughs> blessed not um not that they shouldn't get blessed just because they were the youngest but because you know they did some messed up things 
Um, and it's just a really good reminder of how God continues to use this broken family, these broken people, um, in order to bless the entire world. And it's a, it, it might be a little bit of a cliche, but I think it's an important thing to remember. No, it's absolutely true. And like, and like you said, we're kind of, we're coming to the end of Genesis now. We're going to jump into Exodus. Not yet. We have one, we have a couple yeah. more chapters left in Genesis, but yeah, it, it's a, it's really interesting to see kind of the story of this family come to an end. Um, obviously we're sticking with Israel and all this descendants for, you know, the rest of the Bible, yeah. but, um, the idea of actually getting to know like these characters, like we don't know basically any of the sons that come after this, we're going to, yeah. we're going to jump ahead a few centuries. And now it's, it's much more about the tribes, um, as opposed to the actual people, but yeah. Yeah. It's almost, you get to see, um, Abraham's descendants become the nation first in, in name in Israel. And, you know, we yeah. all know that Israel's the nation. Um, but then you get to see them come into Egypt and actually become that nation that God had promised. And it is kind of interesting. I guess I, I want to put this in out there as well, because when you, <laughs> sorry, when we get into the future, we always talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so there's 13 tribes of Israel because Joseph uh, yeah. has two tribes. The, the 12 tribes of Israel refers to the land. And so in that sense, there's 12 tribes because the tribe of Levi doesn't have any land because yeah. they're the priesthood. It's a whole confusing thing. Um, but it's also why when you see a list of the tribe, Ephraim always comes before Manasseh, even though Manasseh is the firstborn, is because yeah. Jacob did the old switcheroo on his deathbed. And yeah, why did he do? I don't know. I mean, maybe he was just like, he just got a kick out of blessing younger sons. <laughs> yeah, just I, I, it really seemed that way. And it was even just kind of funny to watch, you know, his his eyes were failing, just like his his father Isaac's eyes were failing. And so Joseph's reaction was just like, no, 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 switch your hands. It's over here. Like, And, and Joseph was not happy with the situation. But Jacob was basically like, yeah, but I do what I want. And he switched his hands. <laughs> Sorry, Joseph, who's in charge? That's right. It's me. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, now the time has come for Jacob to bless all of his sons, um, which I guess is nice in light of, you know, him stealing the blessing of his brother all those years ago. He's going he's gonna to give all of his sons um, a quote unquote, quote unquote blessing. Some of them get a little bit of a harsh blessing, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, but here's a couple highlights. Uh, Reuben, remember, is the firstborn, uh, but he loses out on the proper blessing of the firstborn for it, it said that he defiles the bed of his father. Um, I forgot about this. So it's a blink and you miss it moment because it's literally like one sentence back in chapter 35. But you see Reuben sleeps with one of Jacob's concubines. Um, and so this may have also been a power move to try and establish his preeminence over the other brothers. Uh, again, messed up mm -hmm. culture. This is what this is. Well, messed up people. This is what it is. Uh, but Jacob, it seems like he doesn't really punish him in the moment, but he mm -hmm. just kind of remembers. And so he holds on and now's the moment that Reuben gets punished and he loses out on the, the blessing of the firstborn. And it makes you wonder if, if Reuben has been hanging on to that his entire life. It's like when, when you do something to, to seriously make your father angry and he's just like, all right, we're just gonna, we're going to come back to that later. You gotta be. He knows. <laughs> Ooh, we gotta be nervous. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, and so Simeon would be the next son that would have the blessing of the firstborn. Uh, but he and Levi, who is the son after that, they also both are rejected because of what they did at Shechem. So remember, um, after their sister was taken advantage of, they go and they basically tell the entire town of Shechem that they need to circumcise themselves. And then once they do, and they're all in a bunch of pain, they go in and they kill everybody. So, and Jacob is horrified at this. He says that you've, you've ruined my reputation in the land. And so Simeon and Levi are also rejected for the blessing of the firstborn. And that hot temper of Levi, I think is going to be passed down. I saw, I said this last week, but uh, you know, there's a certain descendant of Levi that we're going to meet here in a second who also has a hot temper. Uh, and then this leads to Judah. 
who is the fourth son, and he receives the actual proper blessing of the firstborn. And so, and again, it's not like necessarily explicitly say, but when you read through the blessings, you get to Judah and you're like, oh, okay, that, that one actually sounds like a, like a real, like a real blessing. Uh, after this, Jacob asks that his body be returned to his homeland, and he wants to be buried alongside Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, and Leah. And we talked about this last week when, when Rachel died, she's buried where they are. When Leah dies, uh, she is the wife that Jacob has buried in the tomb of his fathers. And so for all of the, I think Leah is one of the most sympathetic characters in the Bible where I don't know how much, I don't, I don't know how much she was in on the whole wedding thing. Obviously she was in on it because yeah. she was there, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is how much of that is Laban basically forcing her into it. Yeah. Um, and her whole life, she is so clearly unloved. She is so clearly um, not Jacob's favorite wife to the point where she has to, uh, she has to basically buy time with him. And that's how the, the her last two sons are born because, mm. uh, Rachel bought some mandrakes off of, off of Reuben. And she's like, Hey, now you have to spend some time with me basically. Like it's, it's just really sad. Um, and so I do think it's a beautiful ending to that story that when it's all said and done, Jacob and Leah are the ones that are together in the, in the tomb of the patriarch. So mm. really, really interesting. Uh, after this, Jacob dies, and Joseph is distraught over this. I mean, he's he's, he's weeping. Obviously, he's lost out on over a decade with his father, and and now he gets a little bit of time, but and, and then it's over again. Uh, and so Joseph asks Pharaoh if he can go back to Israel or go back to Canaan and bury his father according to his wishes, and and Pharaoh blesses him on that. Uh, upon his return, Joseph's brothers are worried that he was biding his time to kill them until after Jacob died. Remember, that was kind of Esau's plan, right? Is after he stole his birthright, uh, his plan was to wait until Isaac dies to kill Jacob. And so the brothers are worried that that's what's going on here. Maybe that trait runs in the family. Uh, and then we get this beautiful passage, which is also, I'm just going to read the last 10 verses of Genesis. So it's going to give us a beautiful passage and then we'll see how the book kind of fully wraps up. Uh, it says, so they sent instructions to Joseph saying, your father commanded us before he died, saying, This is what you shall say to Joseph. Please forgive, I beg you, the offense of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the offenses of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept before they, or when, they, when they spoke to him. Then his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to keep many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons and also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will assuredly take care of you and bring you up from this land, which he has promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will assuredly take, you, take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and they embalmed him, and they placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Yeah, it is kind of it's 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 interesting because I think this passage, like what God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that usually gets lumped into the first time mm -hmm. that Joseph forgives his brothers. But there's actually two moments of that, um, and the second moment Joseph carries with him the the clear perspective, and, and, and this is in the first moment too. But I, I just love the idea of what you intended for evil, God intended for good, and that really sums up 
Genesis, mm. and it really sums up the whole of the Bible. Yeah. Um, but I think with Genesis in particular, it's it's just the story of all of this evil, all of this wickedness, like God speaking into godless cultures and taking all of those things and working them together for good. Um, and we, yeah, me and Nathan were talking about it yesterday. It's it's funny when you trace it back because, well, jo- the family would have not, they wouldn't have survived if Joseph hadn't been in Egypt. Joseph wouldn't have been in Egypt if his brothers weren't jealous of Jacob's favoritism. Jacob probably, uh, Jacob was showing favoritism because he showed favoritism to his wives. The reason he was showing favoritism to his wives is because he was deceived by Laban. The, way, the reason Laban, Jacob was deceived by Laban is because he deceived his brothers. The reason he deceived his brothers is because Isaac showed favoritism. Like you can just keep pulling on this thread of all of this sin, this generational sin of that's just going back and back and back and all of the failures of the patriarch. And what God does is he takes that line of sin and he works it together to save lives. Like it's just a really beautiful picture of the way that God works. And I, I can't think of a better, a more fitting end to the to the first book of the Bible. Yeah, and it really does just continue to remind me um, that we kind of end Genesis sitting in this like heartwarming, um, nice place for Israel. Yes, there's still there's still pain, there's still famine, and you just kind of assume that everybody gets through it because of what we get to in in Exodus. But um, you end with um, the family of Israel being restored to one another. You end with them in a very good place in Egypt, and even um, just that really that really good relationship between. Um, Joseph and Pharaoh. And yeah, it's a, it's a really nice close to Genesis. Um, we are now moving into the, the book of Exodus. And Exodus starts with just a short reminder of where we are in that story that we're just coming out of. Israel and his sons came to Egypt because um, of Joseph's status and they thrived and they multiplied um, and were blessed. Uh, but there is still that question that I want to remind people of is that tension between the Egyptians and the Israelites is like, is the the blessing of the Israelites causing the Egyptians to um, to maybe be a little bitter? I don't know. I think it's, it's an interesting, I'd never thought about it until you brought it up, but it is kind of interesting because clearly the Pharaoh thing is just like, at, at some point the Pharaoh just, the, the, the Pharaoh dies and then yeah. eventually you get to the point where the Pharaoh's like, why do we even have a special relationship with these people anyway? Yeah. But I never would have thought about the underlying um, like racial resentment that the Egyptians may have been. And it's not explicitly stated, but I think it's a really interesting thing to read into the text as well that, that I think it's it's not a crazy leap in logic to say that that was there. Yeah. And at the very least, it kind of um, helps you understand why they were still a divided people and a divided nation. You know, jumping into Exodus, this is some 400 years later that they've been in Egypt. And you would assume that they would have kind of meshed together in their cultures and um, and in their lives, and they did to some extent, but um, knowing that tension between them and the blessing on Israel and, and not on Egypt um, can maybe help us understand why they're so separate from each other right. still. That's a good point. Um, yeah, cool. Um, so at this point, we're coming into uh, Exodus chapter one. Many generations have passed, and there is now a, a new Pharaoh who doesn't care about Joseph or the Israelites, um, but is instead afraid of them because they have become a large enough people group that they're a threat. Um, so in order to, to compensate for that, he puts them into slavery and heavy labor to oppress them. And in order to control the population growth, um, he calls in the midwives of Israel to him and tells them to kill um, all of the, the newborn babies that were born. Now, you and I have talked about this a little bit this week and also um, a little bit in this podcast, but 
Um, obviously the killing of babies is abhorrent and terrible. And you see that in the response of Israel and everybody going into it. Um, but it's interesting to think about in this culture, um, the, the sacrifice of children ritualistically for religion or for population control on an enemy, or even just in trading with, um, with the surrounding people around you wasn't that uncommon. Um, yeah. Well, I think there's like, it's, it's, it's a touchy topic, but it's not uncommon. I was thinking how to phrase this. It's more common today than we would think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very easy to, to look at abortion in our country as, um, obviously it's not ritualistic or anything, but, but what is it most of the time? It's most, most of the time it's, it's choosing comfort over the lives sure. of children. Um, but e- even more, I was thinking about when you look at China and that's not that mm-hmm. distant in the past. And no. for the sake of population control, it was um, forced sterilization, forced abortions. Yeah. Like they, they killed like so, so many kids uh, because that's just what they thought was the right yeah. thing to do. So e- even, in, even in our culture today where it's kind of like slavery too, where like we kind of think like, oh yeah, we're past that. But if you, you can dig into it and you can find places in the world where yeah. it's like slavery still exists and, and it's horrifying. Um, you can still find places in, in our in our culture and in our world where uh, we're still very flippant with the lives of children. So it's a, it's a scary thing. Yeah, it is a scary thing, and um, it just goes to show with uh, with this Pharaoh making this decision, um, you kind of have this idea of it's like he he grew in fear so much that finally he's like, all right, we're just going to kill all of them. But really, it was just like, wow, these people are really getting big. Um, let's kill all the newborns. Yeah, he's like, yeah. So obviously abhorrent, obviously terrible. Um, but this is kind of uh, the mindset of this people. Um, so, anyways, that's happening. Um, the midwives, however, of Israel, who were told to kill all of the newborn babies. Um, it says that they fear God and they don't kill the babies. Yay, midwives! Oh, we midwives. like midwives. Yeah. Um, and when Pharaoh asks them why, they basically say that uh, Egyptian women are weaklings and the Israelites don't even give them the time to come uh, to to help them give birth. And so they're like, oh, we weren't able to to, to kill the babies. And um, the interesting part of the story is that, uh, well, there's a lot of interesting parts of that story, but um, they they lie and their lives were spared. Um, yeah, Pharaoh, I don't think he buys it. Maybe he just buys it. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. I guess we'll yeah. figure out another way. Or it's just, he's like, all right, fine, whatever. But yeah, you would expect him to kind of be very angry about this, yeah. but it is what it is. Yeah, but they don't. We like the 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 midwives. So that first chapter kind of gives us the the context of how we got from this beautiful blessing of Joseph to the present day oppression of the Israelites. And that's just a bunch of background story. Um, and now we kind of switch gears in Exodus 2 and go into a specific um, Hebrew woman, Hebrew mother, um, who gives birth to a character that we all know and love. This is um, Exodus 2, verses 1 through 4. Uh, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that it was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. Now, this is the point of the story where I feel like the Prince of Egypt did me dirty. I love the, I love the movie. I love the music. Um, but in, but in the story we see an Israelite woman who gives birth to a son and is like, dang, that's a fine baby. So I'm not going to kill him 
doesn't kill him, so she waterproofs the basket and puts it in the Nile. Cue in my brain, river, oh river, deliver my baby. It's a great song. Oh, fantastic song. Um, but I have this picture in my mind of Moses' mom basically just giving up and like just rushing this kid down the Nile River and being like, gee, I hope he survives it somehow. And it's kind of this flippant thing. Um, but no, that's not a, that's not at all what happened. She doesn't float him down the river. She places him among the reeds and Pharaoh's daughter just happens to go down to bathe. Um, now, listen, God does a bunch of miraculous things through Moses. We're going to see that in the future. We know that it's real. Um, but what I'm uh, what I'm reading in this story is that Moses' mom did this very much on purpose. Take that, Hans Zimmer. Um, Hans Zimmer. He's not, the, he's not the director. Well, he, he did the, the he did the song, you know. Yeah, so maybe he was a good part of it. Um, right, who's the director? I have no idea. I should. I, I don't. Oh know man, that. I feel uh, like. Let's be clear. Hans Zimmer is by and far the best thing about that movie because ah, the, yeah, the music good. of the Prince of not that the rest of the movie is bad, but the music of the Prince of Egypt has no right being as good as it is. Oh like, no, every it's, song it's is absolutely great. incredible. Um, but it does do you dirty in a couple in a couple of small ways, and one is not giving Moses' mother enough credit. True, um, it's a brilliant plan, and even to the point where she ends up nursing him for uh, for Pharaoh's daughter. Um, you know, smart woman. Kudos, Moses' mom, smart lady. Um, anyways, for for whatever reason, uh, whether it be on purpose by the mom or or just an act of God, which is um, absolutely possible and probably a little bit of both. Uh, Moses is spared. He's raised by his own mother. Um, and Pharaoh's daughter, he grows up, um, and here's where uh, the second part of Prince of Egypt did me dirty. For sure. Um, this is Exodus 2, 11 through 12. One day, after Moses had grown up, remember, we haven't, we haven't learned any, any other part of Moses other than that he was spared, so this is, the, this is the next little bit. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the man and hid him in the sand. Um, now, maybe I'm terrible, um, and maybe I'm the only one who feels this way on the inside, but there's a tiny bit of me that has this, this voice on the inside that's like, yeah, get him, Moses. Like, it's a, ter- it's a terrible mentality, but yeah, you, you know, you see, you see Moses seeing the suffering of his people um, and this guy beating him up, and, and yeah, he kills him. However, um, he just straight up kills this guy in cold blood. Like he looks this way and that he's like, is anybody watching? He murders him in cold blood, buries him in the sand. And even the next day, even the Israelites are like, dude, like, yeah. And in the movie, he just like shoves a guy and then yeah. he accidentally falls yeah, down. Yeah. And it's like, and I get like, it's a kid's movie. So you're not wanting to show him commit like murder, but yeah, this very much is like, the guy's alone and he just looks around. He's like, okay, fine. And then just, I don't know how he kills him, but like just goes up and stabs him in the back. And yeah. Into and, and buries him in the sand. Like right. you, you don't do that for this is premeditated murder. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, not, not, not a good, not a good thing. I don't know if you're going to bring this up, but can I talk about another way the Prince of Egypt didn't be dirty? Please, is, uh, please do. Um, Moses knows he's an Israelite. Yeah. So like, and I, that's one of the big plot points of the movie is he's raised the entire time and he thinks he's an Egyptian and then he finds out that yeah. he's an Israelite. But like, that's not, that is not the story. Like the whole time, everyone knows that Moses is an Israelite. Moses himself knows that mm-hmm. he's an Israelite. He he clearly has a relationship with his family because we'll, we'll get to the chapters I'm talking about yeah. here, but Aaron's brought up and it's not like this stranger of like, oh yeah, you have a brother named Aaron. It's like, oh yeah, your brother, Aaron, you know him. He's going to help out. Yeah. And at the same time, even though he's clearly aware that he's a Hebrew, 
um, he's not working with them and laboring. Right. He, he goes out and watches them laboring. And so, and not to say that that's even his fault or, or anything like that. It's not a bad thing, but there is a separation and he does have status as kind of the pseudo grandson of Pharaoh. Um, yeah. Uh, so anyways, he, he kills this guy. And because of that, um, Pharaoh tries to kill him. No doubt this Pharaoh is still afraid of an Israel uprising. So the idea of a, a of a semi-powerful Hebrew um, killing an, e- uh, an Egyptian, he can't get away with it. So, um, so Moses flees to Midian and that's about 300 miles away and they didn't have cars or, or anything to get around. So he, he ran. And that's, it's the South of the Sinai Peninsula, right? Yes. Is where Midian is. Um, yeah. Okay. So I guess mental map listeners, if you can picture modern day Egypt, if you go East, there's like a triangle before you get to the much larger Saudi Arabian Peninsula. That's where Midian's at. So, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then forget it. You know, yeah. Don't worry about it. As a side note, as we're just working in the office throughout the week and you go into Evan's office, there will just be videos of random geological facts happening. I love me some geography, let oh, me yeah. tell you. I have a, I have books of maps and they're just great to look at. <laughs> um, so uh, he runs away, he goes to Midian, and the first thing that he does is get into a fight with a bunch of shepherds. Um, now, in his defense, he is defending um, some ladies who are going out to a well to feed their, um, to feed their flock. Uh, but he does, he's clearly just a hot-headed guy. And I didn't even think about it until you mentioned it just a little while ago with Levi being a hothead and and pointing forward to one of his descendants mm-hmm. being a little bit of a hothead. Um, I didn't even connect that to Levi. But uh, this story arc is really um, showing you a little bit of who Moses is because we don't have a lot of backstory on him. We get one chapter of like, hey, here's who this guy is um, and this is what he's about. And you do get to see that he's really zealous for his uh, people. He's a bit of a hothead. Um, and I also put down in my notes, uh, he's not afraid to get into a fight to impress some ladies. And it works out yeah, for yeah, him in the future. It happens. Um, yeah. So that's the backstory on Moses. It's pretty quick, but it does give some insight into who he is. Yeah. So we, we jump forward in time a little bit when we get to Exodus chapter three. Uh, he spent a good amount of time in Midian. So I, I should say after he defends the ladies, they're like, oh, you should meet our father Jethro. And then Jethro's like, oh yeah, come live with us. Jethro's a good guy. So um He's he welcomes Moses into his home, uh, and then eventually Moses is uh, Moses marries one of his daughters, Zipporah, mm-hmm. and they have a couple of children as well. So it's it's cool beans. It's yeah. also a great song in the Prince of Egypt. But... Oh, that's yeah, of all the songs, the yeah, through heaven's eyes. Oh man, we're great. not just hating on the Prince of Egypt. It's a great movie. It oh, just yeah. does you dirty a little bit. Watch the movie. Uh, the, the only thing that bothers me about that song is. It's all metaphor until it gets to this one line and it just like bugs the crap. <laughs> but it's just, it's such a stupid thing, but it's like, because it's a single thread in the tapestry, though it's colored brightly shines, can never see its purpose in the pattern of the grand design and the stone that sits on the very top. And it keeps going through all these different things. And then I can't remember the last line. I should have actually had this prepared, but I'm just saying this off the cuff. But the last thing in that sequence is not a metaphor. It's just like a thing. And I'm like, why are you ruining it? Like it should all be a metaphor. But anyway. These are those very dumb things that bother me, listeners. I'll speak to Hans. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Hunter. The Hunter. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my oh, word. You're Nathan. I'm sorry. Oh, what my an, gosh. What an idiot. All right. That was to me, by the way, not to Nathan. Okay. So Moses has spent a good time amount of time in Midian, uh, and he, come, he comes across a bush that is burning, but it's not being consumed by the fire. Uh, so it's, it's kind of funny because sometimes when we tell the story, it's like Moses looks and he's instantly like, oh, crazy. But like, no, he's like, he's looking at this thing for a while because to yeah. notice that it's not being consumed by the fire means that he's kind of like, 
Like you just kind of imagine like, oh, that's on fire. And maybe he's watching it to make sure it doesn't spread. Or maybe he's just like, like most people is just like, ooh, fire. What, me watch yeah. me watch fire. And then eventually he realizes, wait, this bush isn't getting burned up. Uh, Moses gets a little bit closer to take a look. And then eventually a voice comes from the bush. And this is the audible voice of God. Uh, and God tells Moses to remove his sandals because the place that he is standing is holy ground. Uh, God then tells Moses that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he has heard the cries of his people in Egypt. Um, don't skip over that thought. Like, that's a, like It's basically talking about how the people, the Israelites have been crying out for deliverance, uh, and God is saying, I heard them. And, and that's, a, that's a thing for us today. God, we, we serve a God who hears us. So that, that's a really cool moment. Uh, but God tells Moses that he will free them. And that he is sending Moses to Pharaoh. Uh, and so this leads to this important conversation. This is Exodus chapter three, starting in verse 11. And it says, but Moses said to, said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, assuredly, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So we're going to come back here. Uh, then Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel. And I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said to them, this is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent you. God furthermore said to, Lo- to Moses, this is what you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord. And this is uh, all caps, Lord. So this is the name of God. So it's, it's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is the name for all generations to use to call upon me. Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what is being done to you in Egypt. Uh, I I love this line. And it's funny because I feel like I use this line a lot, I guess, but like growing up when I learned this story, this was always pitched as like, this is when God reveals his name for the first time. Um, When really what's happening is God is reintroducing himself Mm -hmm. to, to Israel. Um, Cause you, you don't realize how much apostasy is going on. And by by apostasy, I mean like they're worshiping false gods in Mm -hmm. in Egypt is what's happening. Um, Because we kind of, it's not mentioned a ton in the Bible, but it, it's it's really clear in Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel is the one that really hammers it out, hammers it out, and then eventually you get to uh, it, it. Kind of keeps being brought up in, in the past as well. But in in Genesis, there's two ways to interpret it. You could say this is the first time that God reveals His name, and then when Moses writes Genesis, he inserts the name of God into places. So where they would have said Adonai, or where they would have used a, diff- a different title of God, that Moses just kind of puts it in there. I don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is that in that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and, and Joseph, like that that lineage knows um, Yahweh personally. They they, mm-hmm. they serve Him, but then eventually, as they live in Egypt and they're beginning to worship all these other gods, eventually the name of God is just forgotten, and they're kind of like. Mm-hmm. Like Nathan, like you said, they're, they're a separate people group, but religiously, they're not all that different yeah. anymore. They just have this vague memory of the God mm-hmm. of their fathers, who is one of the gods in addition in addition to the Egyptian pantheon. And I'm I, granted, I'm reading a lot into that. So that's kind of what I just said is a, it's conjecture on on my part. So it, it could be, I could be wrong. Uh, but yeah, God re-reveals his name to his people. Uh, but Moses is still freaking out even after, even after like the miracles and hearing the audible voice of God, Moses is like, I don't know about this. Uh, and so 
God says that he's going to do a bunch of miracles to pave the way. He's basically like, Hey, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to stretch out my hand and there's going to be plagues. It's going to be very clear that I'm in charge. Moses is still freaking out. Uh, and, and Yahweh's being really patient with Moses in this moment. And so he gives him two signs. He, the first is he tells him to throw down his staff and the staff turns into a serpent. Uh, and then he tells Moses, pick it up by the tail. And when Moses picks up the, the serpent by the tail, it turns back into a staff. Um, I can't, I have, a, you, you never want to look at biblical characters and say, oh, like I'm better than them or whatever yeah. it is. But I feel like that would have convinced, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's pretty crazy to think about. Well, I also wonder, um, and again, maybe this is my Prince of Egypt mind taking over, but um, if you're living in Egypt and you're worshiping these other other gods that are gods over very specific things, you had like the God of the sun, the God right. of fertility, which we'll get into with the plagues. Each one of those plagues is is attacking one of the main gods of Egypt. Um, but it makes you wonder when, when this God approaches him, is he wondering like, Oh, what are you the God of? Like, are you powerful enough to do that? Or are you just powerful over a couple of things? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. When you get into the old Testament, when the, the way they describe God, it's like, they have to specify it's not just, oh yeah, I serve Yahweh. It's I serve Yahweh, the the maker of heaven. Or they have to specify, no, yeah. like, this is, it's the big guns. It's the big God. Yeah. I've been, um, I've been recently meditating on the Shema and I've just, I've just set an alarm. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Shema is a, is a prayer that um, practicing Jews will, will recite every morning and every evening. Um, and it's really simple and it's a huge theme in all of the Torah. And it just says, um, hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. As for you, you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And that line, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, um, is one of the most prominent things in Moses' writing, that he's not the God of the water, he's not the God of the land, not the God of the sun, but he is the one God over right. everything. No, that's, a great, that's a great point there. Um, and so the second sign that Moses is given, because apparently the, the whole snake thing wasn't, wasn't enough. enough. Uh, he sticks his hand inside of his robe and he pulls it out and it's leprous. Uh, and then he puts it back inside of his robe and then he pulls it back out and it's fine. Um, I guess we haven't talked about leprosy yet this season. So it's it's interesting that this is a, uh, that's a weird sentence. Like, that is a weird we sentence. We haven't talked about too. leprosy yet. Um, you can, it's, we don't know exactly what this disease is. It's probably not modern day leprosy. It's it's probably a, a, a kind of a category of skin diseases that could happen. Um, but it occupies a terrifying place in the minds of the of ancient people. Um, and so you you see over and over again in the writings that one of the worst things that can happen to you is 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 you get leprosy. Um, and so God God uses that. Um, he He demonstrates his power over it in the sense that he like he just showed there that he can give it and take it away immediately. Um, and you'll see as we get through Exodus, uh, Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy that he and, and later on as well. Um, looking at you, Uzziah. Uh, God sometimes uses it as a as a punishment as well. Mm. So it's it's kind of interesting that this is where we're kind of introduced to the concept. But it, this is not the last time we were introduced to it. Uh, and then Moses answers, even after seeing these signs, he answers that he's not very good at the whole public speaking thing. And so he's like, I'm, I'm just, I know Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. And so finally, God just lets Moses have it. And so this is, I, I love this section. Uh, it says, but the Lord said to him, who has made the man, who has made the human mouth, who has made anyone unable to speak or deaf or unable to see or blind? Is it not I, the Lord now then go and I myself will be with your mouth and instruct you in what you are to say. Um, that's one of those lines that I just, I, I only have the King James in my head because it's, it's who made man's mouth, who makes him deaf or seeing or mute or blind is not I, um, I just love the way it says it, but anyway, uh, in verse 13. 
Moses says, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. And it says, now the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. You don't, you don't want that. So he said, just saying that God is, God is really mad that Moses is not just trusting him in this moment. Uh, and he said, is there not your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he speaks fluently and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be overjoyed. So you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I myself will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will instruct you in what you are to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. Now you shall take in your hand this staff which, with which you shall perform signs. Uh, and so <laughs> finally God's like, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but just like, okay, I'm done. Aaron's going to help yeah. you. Now get out of here and go do what I'm calling you to do. And Moses like, okay, sorry, God. And so, yeah. That's a common thing that I've been meditating on in the Bible is um, I, I feel like we we can ask God the question even in our minds today of it's like, um, God, if you're real, give me a sign, like do these things, you know, um, and then I'll believe you or, or then I'll do what you say. Mm-hmm. Um, and all throughout uh, the Bible, his his answer is relatively the same. It's that no matter how many signs you see, you're not going to believe. You know, that was Jesus's uh, response to the Pharisees. That was, um, uh, that was the, the exiled um, Israel and the Babylonian exile. That was his response to them. And now even with Moses, he just saw these two amazing things and he's still just like, he's literally sitting there t- arguing with a bush and he's, <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, I don't know, I'm not good at public speaking. It's just amazing to see that signs don't uh, make you believe. Yeah. There's, yeah. It's 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 interesting for sure. God's demonstrating a lot of power and Moses is just kind of not sure what to do with it. But anyway, uh Moses packs up and he returns to Egypt with Zipporah and his sons. Uh we get this story which is pretty much always skipped when we talk about this. It's like a couple lines which is really interesting. Uh this is Exodus chapter 4 verses 24, 24 through 26. Uh but it came about the overnight at the overnight encampment on the way that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. And so Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a groom of blood to me. And so he left him alone. At that time, she said, you are a groom of blood because of the circumcision. Um, so yeah, God's about to kill Moses. Like yeah. we, we kind of don't, we, we skip past that. We don't talk about this very often. Um, and so it, we have to read into this a little bit because it's not, not nothing's necessarily explicitly stated, but it, it seems that God is angry at Moses for not upholding the Abrahamic covenant. Um, so remember, we don't have the law of Moses yet because it's called the law of Moses. So we know who's, who's it, who it's given to. Um, but we do have the, the big covenant that God has with his people is the sign of circumcision. So it's, and I would imagine that most of Israel has fallen away from using this as well. Um, but Moses clearly has. And so, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head if Midian is descended, they're descended from Abraham. Um, but I think Midian is one of the sons of Esau and then they, so they, they know God, but it, it, it seems to me that they wouldn't have been keeping the circumcision right either or maybe they had been and moses was saying no and that's why zipporah Hmm. um does what she does so like i said it's hard because you have to read a lot into us all we know is that god was going to kill moses for an unspecified reason and that what saves it is zipporah circumcising her son and then throwing the foreskin at the feet of moses and then the whole uh you are indeed a groom of blood to me that must have been an awkward conversation that's yeah you're not you're not wrong um, but that happens. Everything's everything's okay now. Uh, God and Moses are chill again. And so uh, after this, Moses 
or sorry, Aaron gets a, a word from the Lord to go out into the wilderness and to meet Moses, and he mm-hmm. does. And then they make their way back to Egypt together. And we'll find out next week how that's all going to go. Uh, but we're going to jump into the New Testament here in a second. Uh, but before I do, I just want to take a moment to ask you to leave a five-star review on whatever app you're listening to, uh, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are kind of the ones that really help us get it out there to the most people. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we'll give you a shout out and read your review on the air, just like we're doing for Kelly Susan, Suzanne. Suzanne. So one of those pronunciations. One, one of the pronunciations. You have a you have a Z in your name, Kelly. Um, and as we were talking about how to pronounce your name. It's probably Susan. We're just going to go with Susan. But uh, my my wife's name is Susanna, and she goes by Zan. And there's a Z here. So you know. Anyways, kindred spirits. Kindred spirits. Um. Anyways, Kelly Susan says, um, listening from Inman, SC. I came across this podcast while searching for a specific topic. I enjoyed it so much, I wanted to hear more. I love the down-to-earth personalities and the sense of humor that comes across. This is my new listen for my long work commute. Don't change a thing. Thanks, Susan. Or thanks, Kelly. Thanks, thanks Kel- Kelly, Susan. Thanks. Uh, yes, well, you know, when you have two first names, it's it's a power move. And, yeah, I, and I respect exactly. it, Kelly. Way to go. No, thank you for the kind words. Uh, we love it. Uh, and we would love for you to leave a five-star review. Well, let's jump into the New Testament. Okay, starting off in Luke 21, we see that Jesus, uh, sorry, Jesus sees a widow give two coins in the offering after watching many of the wealthy put in the offering, uh, put in their own offerings before. Uh, Jesus tells those around him that the widow is the one who gave the most out of everyone else. And essentially the idea is, um, like the way I kind of interpret it is God has enough stuff. And so the reason we're giving is not because like God is desperate and he won't be able to work in our lives if we don't give. Um, the reason we give is to worship God. It's it's to show that we love him. And so the the gift of a, a widow giving out of her need and out of her poverty is going to mean more than like the wealthy kind of just throwing in like, oh yeah, here's a little bit. So really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see this later with, um, which letter is it where, is it, hmm, I can't remember. There's a letter of Paul where he talks about the uh, the Macedonians who are like going through intense persecution. They're very poor. and And yet- they kind of like forced Paul to take their money because they heard another church was struggling and they wanted to give it to him. So uh, it reminds me of that. Yeah. Very strong. Uh, Blessed are the poor vibes, a little sermon on the Mount. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. It's almost like it all connects. Almost like. Oh man. Uh, Jesus then starts telling his disciples about uh, future falls. And so first there will be the coming fall of Jerusalem and then the final judgment, which has not yet happened. And you kind of get this Jesus talks about a bunch of different things. Like he'll talk about the crucifixion. He'll talk about the fall of Jerusalem, which is going to be about 40 years in the future. Um, and then he'll also talk about his coming return and kind of the final, the final return of Christ. And obviously that hasn't happened yet. Um, or it happened in me and Nathan are down here and we're about to go upstairs and be really sad. But probably. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> just got dark. Left behind terror. No. Anyway. Uh, Those movies. Yeah. That was who who on earth thought it was a good idea to take like I was like six or seven when they oh, came yeah. out. And so they I just got shown all those movies as a kid. And I was just so terrified. Years of my life in terror. My goodness. Oh man. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about right now. Uh Jesus then starts telling his disciples, um, sorry, uh, that was the thing I just read. Uh Jesus then begins to give some cryptic hints about his eventual return, uh, including this. So this is in Luke 21, verses 32 to 36. He says, Truly I say to you. 
This generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Mm. Be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with the dissipation and the drunkenness and the worries of life. And that this day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, mm. but for, for it will come upon all those who live on all the face of the earth, but stay alert at all times, praying that you will have the strength to escape all of these things that are going to take place and stand before the son of man. Um, again, Jesus loves being cryptic with the end. I mean, God loves being cryptic, like, like the triune Godhead loves being cryptic with the end, because even when we get to Revelation, which is the most clear teaching we have on the end, I wouldn't call it clear yeah. by any means. It's very difficult to interpret. Um, but I love the idea of this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So you can kind of understand how a bunch of people think, oh, before I die, Jesus is going Jesus is going to come back. And clearly that's not what happens. And so I kind of interpret it as meaning this generation is kind of just all people who live under the new covenant. Uh, it, yeah. it, it's kind of that idea um, which always makes me, it makes me think about like, people will say like, do you think we're in the end times? And I'll be like, oh yeah, for sure. Um, but like, I think the end times started once, I think A once Jesus, once Jesus rose again, I think that's the start of the end yeah. times. Uh, and so, and obviously we're still living in it and then we're going to get to, uh, the return of Christ. So kind of interesting. Jesus loves, loves his little cryptic hints. And then sometimes he gives really clear ideas of what's going to happen. And his disciples are confused because Jesus is just being cryptic all the time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, we then move into Luke chapter 22, and this is, um, this for me, this is one of the most beautiful chapters um, to read, but it's also a really difficult chapter to read. Um, basically, at this point of the story, um, it's time for the Passover feast and the ending of Jesus' ministry on earth in the flesh. Um, he's traveled all around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's returned to Jerusalem, and um, he returned to Jerusalem to, in his words, fulfill all of what the law and the prophets had spoken about the Messiah. Um, at the same time, the drama of, of the Pharisees and Jesus is kind of coming to a head at this point. There's a lot of tension. Um, and Jesus is preparing to sit down with his disciples for the Last Supper. But just before, there's this little paragraph right at the top of the page. Um, and it's a little section that says the Pharisees were looking for a way to kill Jesus secretly um, because they were afraid of the people who thought that he was a prophet. Um, so it paints this picture for us of this beautiful evening with Jesus and his disciples, these men that he's traveled with, um, but outside surrounding this beautiful scene, there's this really heavy, dark, sinister plan. Um, and that's kind of the tension that we're living in, in this story. Um, I also think yeah. one, one thing that I just made me think of here, cause they were afraid of the people's reaction. Um, yeah. and so what that means is that Jesus is really popular with the people, obviously. Yes. Um, I think we, the way, I can't remember if we talked about this year or not, but the way we've talked about Pharisees or the way we often talk about Pharisees is as if they were kind of these like really stuck up elite class that the people didn't like. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the Pharisees. The Pharisees were actually the, the they were kind of the people's party. The Sadducees were the elites um, who kind of felt really far away. And so I, I just thought of this as you're, as you're reading it, but I wonder if there's also a bit of jealousy coming up here where the people were on the Pharisee side and they were respecting mm. the, the, the Pharisaic rabbis and all these different things. And now all of a sudden you have this other person coming in who's taken away a lot of the popularity of the Pharisees. Um, and, and, and instead it's all going to Jesus. So it's, it's another interesting layer that I'm, I'm thinking about as, as we're talking. Yeah. And that, that's really interesting. And that would kind of make sense on why um, it says that they, they feared the people because the people regarded Jesus as a prophet, but only a select few regarded him as the Messiah that was to come. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, I never really thought about that. The, the yeah, the the Pharisees were on the side of the people, and that's clearly about to play out in in what we see. But yeah, um, so the time came for the Passover dinner. Uh, Jesus is continuing to amaze all of his disciples with the miracles and um, how he knows things that no normal man even could, even with the preparation for the dinner. Um, and it comes to uh, the Last Supper and the First Communion. This is uh, verses fourteen uh, through twenty. When the hour came. Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, but I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Um, And I feel like you can't read this communion passage too often um, without thinking about the the original Passover in Egypt that we're about to get to. So a a few spoilers here, but I was curious, I asked um, a couple people around if when they read the communion passage, which we do regularly because we take communion, um, like, do, do you think of uh, the, the first Passover in Egypt? And I was curious if that comes to mind for you frequently. Not usually. No, that's a good point, though, that that, that is what they're celebrating. But I, my mind is almost always going to the Last Supper specifically. Yeah, totally. This, this has really stood out to me um, recently how important it is that this is um, taking place uh, at the time of the Passover. So, so for those of you who um, don't know, the Passover um, celebration that they're at was celebrating the first Passover that happened in Egypt. Um, it was the 10th plague where God goes throughout Egypt and kills um, all the firstborn sons of the house. Spoilers. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> eh, it's a couple weeks away still. But um, God told Moses and the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb, take the leg and uh, spread the blood with the leg over the doorpost. And as the spirit of death passed over the houses in Egypt, if it saw the blood on the post, um, it would simply pass over. And I think why this is so important to me and why I try to focus on it and meditate it, um, meditate on it regularly is um, if you're like me, I can, I can tend to um, become legalistic really, really quickly and think of all the things that I should be doing and just thinking of the repentance that comes with um, with serving Jesus. And obviously that's a really big part of it. It's what the prophets were speaking about. It's what John the Baptist spoke about Jesus. It's a big part of it, but I love the picture of the first Passover. Um, those people were so helpless and they, that putting the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, they didn't have any power over the, um, the spirit of death, but they, but God simply said, put this blood on the doorpost and it will pass over you. And it's so uh, clearly seen as something that isn't earned um, but it's just uh, God and his infinite mercy um, in Christ passes over me. Um, so I think it, it's so significant that this takes place over Passover. Um, and I think it's important for us to meditate on that. No, it's a great connection point for sure. Yeah. Um, after this after this beautiful part of the meal, the meal takes a, a pretty heavy turn, um, which makes sense in, in context with what's going on. Um, first, Jesus reveals that uh, one of them is going to betray him. Um, then somehow that turns into an argument amongst the disciples about which of them is the the greatest. That's a common argument um, amongst them at this point. Uh, Jesus then warns Simon that the devil has asked to test him, but Jesus has prayed for him and commanded him that when he returns um, to strengthen his brothers. Um, then Jesus tells uh, all of them that 
um, their life without Jesus is going to look really different. And he warns them and, and gives them some, some different instructions and commandments um, and, and warns them that, you know, when I was with you, there's some relative peace and stuff, but um, it's going to be different. It's a really different picture. And so this is uh, really another picture of the chaos and fear going on behind the scenes of this really beautiful, serene moment. Um, and it's the tension that we, that we sit in as we go to the garden um, of Gethsemane, which happens right after this. This is Luke 22, 39 through 46. Um, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone throws beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and sweat was, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He said to them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And there are so many things that we could go over in, um, in this passage uh, that we could talk about. But one thing that just really stood out to me this time, and so I, we talked about it a little bit um, earlier this week and I wanted to bring up is, um, I think right now it's really popular to focus on some of the, the foolishness on the part of the disciples, how they seem to miss the point um, all along the way of Jesus' um, uh, of Jesus's teachings. And yeah, that is like a really big part of the, of the gospels. And I think it's important that, yeah, these people weren't, um, weren't fully up to speed with what Jesus was doing. He was kind of bringing these broken people on this journey along with them. But I think it gets to the point where we think that, um, the disciples have no idea what's going on in this point. Right. Um, and we think that they are, um, yeah, just, just kind of, um, foolish. But, uh, here you see that, um, you know, in the Last Supper, not only did Jesus prepare them for Jesus' departure um, and sent them on the way, but that that weight took a toll on them. And it, they're not sleeping out of laziness and foolishness here, but they're sleeping because they're sorrowful about what's going on. Well, it's kind of like, it's it's really interesting because, yeah, you brought this up earlier this week. And I don't know, I mean, how many times have we read yeah. the this passage? I've, it's, I've never noticed that it says they're sleepy from sorrow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the implication there is, and we've all been in that situation where you're just like, something really heavy has happened yeah. and you're just weighed down. Um, maybe you're just weeping and, and you're even, it, it, yeah, you want to go to bed early basically yeah. is, is the way it is. And so you, you get that picture of, yeah, I, I thought it was a really astute point that you brought up because it completely reframes it. Cause I think, yeah, the way I heard this growing up was like, yeah, the disciples like those, they couldn't even stay awake yeah. when Jesus needed them. But you realize like, this is uh, obviously they still fail because Jesus rebukes them for, yeah. for not, for not staying awake. But this isn't just like a, you know, I'm tired. I'm going to check out. Like this really is like a, they feel the weight of this moment, maybe not fully, but they feel the emotional weight of it. And, um, it's completely understandable from a human standpoint that they are just overcome. With yeah. It. Yeah. It's clear that they don't know all the details about, um, what, what exactly is going to happen to Jesus, but, but they know that he's, um, departing and that life is going to look different and they're really sorrowful. I'm sure they're also sorrowful over, um, over Judas, which I, which I'm assuming was fairly apparent as he left, um, that he, it's hard to miss that hint. It's, it's hard to miss. Yeah. Um, so this is a really, a really heavy time for the disciples. Um, after this, uh, Judas comes and as we know, he betrays Jesus. And even in this moment, Jesus continues to call out the Pharisees on their wickedness. He says in verse 53, every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns, uh, which is kind of just 
a sick burn on the on the Pharisees. So it was basically like, you, why didn't you do this in daylight? He's continuing to call yeah. them out on like, hey, this isn't right. We all know that this isn't right, but do what you need to do. Basically, Jesus is uh he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he knows he knows what's going on. Um, there's no uh yeah, there's no question in his mind. Um, Jesus is then taken away to trial. Peter just outside. Um, disowns Jesus and leaves him in his shame. Um, as we know, Jesus is mocked and abused by the guards and accused of blasphemy by the council um, and then is sent away to trial by Pilate. And that's where we leave um, Luke chapter 22 on a very somber note. Yeah. And it's not going it, to, it's going to stay somber. Yeah. So chapter 23 is one of the the heaviest chapters in the Bible. Um, I, di- I didn't think about this when I was doing the notes, but I guess it's probably important to talk just for like 30 seconds about the the different layers of leadership that's happening right now because it can be a little bit confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in Israel, there is the religious leadership, there's the Jewish political leadership, and there's the Roman political leadership. Um, and so the the council or the Sanhedrin, uh, those are the same thing. That's the religious leadership of the people. Um, and so there's both Pharisees and Sadducees on that council, although the high priest is always a Sadducee mm-hmm. for political reasons. Um, but so that that's who Jesus is going on trial first. So they're convicting him for religious reasons. Um, the ultimate political authority in that land would be the obviously the Roman authority because they're under the empire of Rome. So that's where he's going next. So that's who Pilate is. Pilate is the, um, I, I forgot the, is it the governor of Judea? I think that's what he is. But anyway, he, he's, the high, he's the highest officer around is, is the idea there. Um, and so Jesus goes to Pilate and he, he clearly doesn't care. So, because remember, the Sanhedrin are wanting to put Jesus to death for blasphemy laws. So you're going before um, someone who is not Jewish and like, hey, he he mocked the name of our Lord. And Pilate's like, okay, okay, like why? Like you it really like I'm paraphrasing, but basically it's just like, why should I care about this? Um, and so he realizes that Jesus is also under the political uh, jurisdiction of Herod, who is kind of the Jewish political leadership at that moment. Uh, and so eventually Pilate just kind of sends him along to there. Yeah, and it makes me wonder um, if we remember in the past the I can't remember if it's the Pharisees or the Sadducees tried to get Jesus to uh, to turn on Caesar's law at some point. Oh, good point. Um, by asking him whether or not they should pay taxes and, and thinking that was going to put him into a corner, and Jesus said, "Give unto Caesar's what is Caesar's." And so at some point, you got to wonder if Pilate was like, "Hey, this guy actually seems like a pretty stand-up citizen doing some weird stuff," but hey, um, no, that's a great yeah. point. Yeah, they they were trying to trap him and make the make the Romans hate him first before they got, got in there. That's, a, that's an interesting point there. Um, so he's sent to Herod and Herod kind of just mocks Jesus. But again, he kicks the can down the road. Um, he doesn't, he also doesn't see any reason to have him executed. Um, Herod is not exactly a religious stand-up citizen. So he, he is Jewish, but he's definitely not a, uh, I don't know what you even call it, but he, he doesn't care, I guess. Yeah. Like if, 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 if it was true that Jesus was blaspheming God, I don't think Herod would give two hoots about it. So uh, he sent them back to Pilate and Pilate is just, he realizes that, okay, the Sanhedrin are clearly, they want this guy dead. Um, so he's trying to just like essentially have it a little bit of both ways. He's just going to convict him a little bit, but also get him released. So he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to put this guy to death for no reason, but also it kind of, he's hoping to appease the Sanhedrin by saying basically like, yeah, you know, he's in trouble. Um, but on the day of this festival that happens to be, um, that happens to be this week, uh, it's customary for Pilate to release one of the prisoners. And so he essentially kind of stacks the deck 
in Jesus's favor because he picks just the worst prisoner, right? So he mm-hmm. picks a guy who's a murderer. Um, and he's a revolutionary, and it's funny because I think in in a uh, in our modern American context, when we hear revolutionary, we're like, yeah, the good guys <laughs> or, or Star Wars. Like, yeah. you know, um, for most of human history, revolutions were a very bad thing. Yeah. Um, and if you read up on pretty much any revolution that's not like the American Revolution, like, and for looking over the French Revolution, which happens like a decade later, and what does that lead to? It's just like, oh, everyone's getting beheaded, and all yeah. of a sudden it's like autoc- autocracies rise up again. Um, Revolution is normally a really bad thing. And what people wanted at this point in their lives, the, the, the idea of like, I want personal freedom and to vote for my leadership is is very foreign. Um, what most people are wanting at this point is stability, is is just the ability to to live their lives and to not be just horribly persecuted. Um, and so the revolutionaries are a danger to that. So the, he's he's a danger to um, the stability of the citizens of Jerusalem is kind of the way I would describe Bar- Barabbas is his name. I didn't, I didn't say his name yet. So Pilate puts this man out there. He's, he's one of the lowest of the low and he tells the crowd, Hey, one of these two guys, uh, and it, you can have Jesus be released or you can have Barabbas be released. And his plan is to kind of just flog Jesus and then, and then send him back out. Um, I shouldn't say just flog Jesus. Flogging was yeah. incredibly painful. So I, I don't want to skip over that, but his, his hope is to not kill yeah. Jesus basically. Um, the crowd, to Pilate's shock, the crowd cries out that they want Barabbas to be released. Um, and so again, sorry, I, sh- I should have, I should have, I got this out of order. Pilate's plan is to just release Jesus. After the crowd cries out that they want Barabbas to be released, his plan is to not put him to death. His plan is to flog him um, and then release him after that. Uh, but the crowd shouts that they want him to be crucified. And so it's this whole big moment. Um, I do want to be careful here too, because I think sometimes we we preach this passage as um, the same people who were shouting Hosanna at, uh-huh. like when Jesus came in Jerusalem are now shouting crucify him. I don't think it's the same people. Um, mm. I think this is like, and obviously this is open-handed. It could be, it's open to interpretation. I think what's happening here is it's the citizens who are loyal to the Pharisees. Um, because it's not like the council of the Sanhedrin is against Jesus and all of the rest of Israel is completely on board. Like obviously there's pockets of people um, who are on board with Jesus and there's pockets of people, probably larger pockets of people uh, who who aren't. And so I think that's what's happening here. I don't think it's the, within a week people were like the son of David, the Messiah is here. And then all of a sudden like, ah, kill him. Yeah. So I, but again, I, I, I could be wrong on that. Like I said, it's kind of an open-handed issue. Um, and Pilate eventually we don't get it in this gospel, but this is when he washes his hands of of the whole thing, and then he's he's exasperated, and he he just gives into their demands. He's like, "Fine, I'm I'm done with this," um, and, he, and that's kind of just the attitude you go, Pilate, the whole time is he just doesn't care, yeah, um, and and he and he cares, and to to his little bit of credit, he cares enough to try and get Jesus off the hook. Um, he's but he, trying to be just, yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good way to put it. Um, but eventually, he's just he just gives up. He's yeah. like, "Okay, fine, take what you want." Um, so after uh, Jesus flogged. Um, I don't want to get into too graphic of detail, but I mean, um, like the passion of the Christ is not as exaggerated as you think it is. Yeah. It's it, it, uh, Roman flogging was an, inten- an intensely painful thing. Um, and you can see that because after, after it, Jesus is too weak to carry his cross. Um, and it, it's not the whole cross, by the way, that's kind of a picture that we get. He would carry the top beam and then they would tie the top beam to the stake that was already in the ground. Um, but Jesus, he just can't do it. He can't, he can't carry it right now. And so a man named uh, Simon, who is from Cyrene, is enlisted to carry the cross for Jesus. And so as Jesus is being led to Golgotha, um, or the place of the skull is what it says in some translations, but that's just kind of the 
I don't remember mm-hmm. the Greek name of it. Um, Jesus sees many women weeping for him, and he warns them to weep for their children for the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Man. Boy, that's a scary. Man, <laughs> like man. that. Imagine just hearing that, where like you're weeping over um, what's happening, and then Jesus is basically like, "It's going to get worse." Yeah. Um, oh my gosh! Uh, and so Jesus finally arrives at Golgotha, um, and I'll just put in the notes, like, if you think Joseph's show of mercy was incredible, let's just read what happens here. So this is verses 33 through 43. It says, and when they came to the place of the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Uh, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing his garments among themselves. Um, I cannot imagine looking into the face of your murderers (laughs) and saying, and asking for God's forgiveness in that moment as they're actively murdering you. Um, I mean, I mean, Jesus is God. <laughs> like, yeah. like the, you can see the, the, uh, the incredible mercy that Jesus shows here, which is so far beyond um, what anyone would ever, <laughs> what, what anyone else would ever be able to show. Um, it's picking up in verse 35, it says, and the people stood by watching and even the rulers were sneering at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also ridiculed him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, which is probably like a vinegar type substance, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, this was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuses at him. And he said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other responded and rebuking him said, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we are indeed suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, got a little emotional there. But it, yeah. it, it's just a, um, it, it also shows that the thief gets it. Because remember a, uh, uh, one of the big kind of plot twists of Jesus being the Messiah is that it's not a physical kingdom that's going to be ushered in. Like Jesus isn't going to overthrow Rome. Um, and I think a lot of the times when people are calling Jesus the Messiah and they're talking about his kingdom, they they have that misunderstanding. The thief clearly doesn't because I don't yeah. think he's under the impression that Jesus is going to just like bounce off this cross yeah. here. I think he clearly understands that there's a, there's a spiritual reality um, mm. to who Jesus is. And so, and I, and I love again, mm. Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom and Jesus says, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. It's another mercy um, in that moment that just kind of gets at the the heart of Christ. Yeah, I've been I've been talking with my family and, and one of them just asked the question of like, does God love uh, this more than this or does he love this person more than this person? And And so I've been looking into that and just trying to come to the understanding of when we say that God is love and God is the perfect manifestation the perfect um bar of love um it means that he loves everything perfectly and i don't i don't think there's um a better example of that like like when you said um like speaking to his murderers and speaking to this thief um that even uh even at the very worst uh jesus loves these two absolutely perfectly yep no absolutely um, so after some time on the cross, Jesus declares that he commits his spirit to the father and then he dies. Um, this is kind of, it's not a, I mean, maybe a miracle is a weird way to put it, but basically what I'm trying to say is, um, normally it would take you a long time to die on the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's, it's a, it's death by, um, 
asphyxiation. When you can't breathe. Asphyxiation. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the word. Um, but so that, that's how you die. So it, it, would, it would be hours and it could be days that you would be on the cross because it was meant to be like a public shaming. Um, so Jesus actually dies rather quickly for someone being crucified. And I think it's, it's a little bit miraculous because I think what you are seeing here is him legitimately just giving up his spirit, which is obviously not something that we have, as humans have the ability to do. Like we can't just think, die now, and then we die. So that's, that's what's happening there. Um, after this happens, one of the Sanhedrin named Joseph of Arimathea, uh, he was a righteous man who opposed what was being done. And he takes Jesus's body and he buries it properly. So you find he has a tomb that of his family that hasn't been used yet. And so he uses that to bury Jesus. Um, I think it's also an important note that I think we we kind of lump all of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin yeah. into like one big group. Um, no, there were clearly Pharisees who heard the words of Jesus and were convinced. Um, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. I can't remember if it says Joseph is a Pharisee for sure, if it's just that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. So he could have been a Sadducee. If I, I don't remember off the top mm-hmm. of my head. Um, but clearly there's people who are in the the hierarchy of the religious leadership who hear the words of Jesus and and mm-hmm. are convinced. So it's not like it's, yeah, like I, I don't want to paint them completely with a broad brush there. Uh, well, some of Jesus's women disciples who uh, see where his body is laid and they prepare some ointments. However, so Jesus dies on a Friday. Um, Sabbath is observed from, and to this day, if you mm-hmm. have Jewish friends, they observe Sabbath from um, the sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. So basically the Sabbath is about to start. Um, and so they go home and they observe the Sabbath uh, according to their law. And the, the idea is that they're going to return on Sunday morning. Um, essentially, I think they're just going to beg for the tomb to be opened because it's under guard and then hopefully just anoint Jesus' body and kind of just make it as, as proper a burial as as they can. Yeah, and we pick up in Luke chapter 24, um, and it is really interesting reading um, reading about the resurrection in this last chapter. This is the absolute foundation of our faith. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, um, there's, there's nothing really for us to stand on. Um, however, in, in this particular chapter, it's fairly brief, so I'm, I'm going to um, try to expound on a, a couple key points, but it is interesting that there's not a lot of writing after the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but that's a little bit of a spoiler because we haven't gotten there. So pre- pretend that you didn't hear that. Um, no, uh, just as a reminder, um, it's been, it, we're, we're now picking up on Sunday. It's been three days since the d- death of Jesus. Um, the disciples are in deep mourning, confusion, sorrow. Um, and some of the, some of the women went um, to prepare Jesus's body. Uh, in verse one says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they entered and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and there's two really important um, points to be made here if you're an apologetics buff. Um, as we know, the the resurrection, yeah, it is the foundation of our faith. I was going to yeah. say, Nathan, what is apologetics? Oh, apologetics is, um, that's a great question, Evan. Um, it's the basically just the defense of our faith. Um, it's and um, I feel like when I say that, people can come to the conclusion that it's like people are attacking and we are defending. Um, and while that's a part of it, um, really the way that I like to think of it, it's it's understanding why you believe what you believe. And I think that's a really important part. Yeah. Peter reminds us, I can't remember if it's first Peter or second Peter, but he says, always be ready to give a, a defense of your faith. Yes. Or it's an ax. Crap. Peter says it. He yeah. says it somewhere. Yeah. Um, and so apologetics is the attempt to do um, just that. And there's two really important um, points for apologetics just in this, uh, these little three verses. Um, and the first one is called uh, the criterion of embarrassment. 
Um, and basically historians will hold in high esteem um, uh, a certain piece of literature if the content of that literature would have embarrassed the author. Um, because it seems unlikely that uh, somebody would make something up in order to embarrass themselves for no reason. Um, so they they hold that in high esteem. Yeah, like if you read through, I was listening to, um, I can't remember his name, but I think we talked about him last year on the podcast, so I can give him some credit. I gave him some credit there, but he was talking about if you read Egyptian history, um, they never lost a battle, which obviously yeah. isn't true. But like it, it, it's um, for most of history, when history was being recorded, it wasn't with the idea of like, let's be as accurate as possible. It's with the idea of let's make us look as good as we yeah. possibly can. And so that's why the idea of something being written, if it was embarrassing, that that lends a lot of weight to it being true, because like you said, why, why would you write it? Yeah. And that's why um, that's why the, the vast majority of historians to this day um, believe that certain things of the resurrection took place, whether they believe that um, believe in Christ or not. Um, they believe that these things are true. And one of them is that um, it was women who di- who discovered Jesus. Um, and in that time, women were uh, a subpar category of um, of culture. And basically their their word, it wouldn't hold up in court. It was just kind of considered like, oh, it was the word of a woman. It's not a good thing, um, but it is the way it was there. And so for the disciples, um, for the beginning section of the most important event in history to rely on the testimony of women in that culture, um, uh, it basically lends itself to really strengthen the argument that the women went to the tomb and found it empty. Yeah. The idea would be if, you know, Peter, James, and John are getting together and it's like, Hey, how can we fake that Jesus rose from the dead? Their first instinct wouldn't be like, Oh, let's, let's tell everyone that the women are the one who found it. They would say like, Oh yeah, we went and we found it. And it would, cause it would, it would be more believable to that culture. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Especially if you're about to go and tell a bunch of Jews right. that Jesus rose from the dead and try to convince them that, that he's the Messiah. Um, you just wouldn't tell it that way. So, so that's the first um, important apologetics point. Um, the second point is the empty tomb itself. There's a really good book out there that was recommended to me by um, Hunter. And I think I ended up giving the book to you, Evan. I don't know if you read it. Um, it's called The Case for the Resurrection of Christ. Haven't read it yet, but I do have it. Yeah. It's a good one. Basically, the idea of the book is um, there's a guy who compiles a five-point argument for the resurrection of Christ based only on um, evidence that the vast majority of uh, critical scholars believe today, whether they're Christian or not Christian. It's a really good book. I suggest it. Um, but basically- Do you want to say, say the name of it one more time? Yeah, The Case for the rec- Resurrection of Christ. I should know the name of the author. Um, however, I do not. But um, basically, it, it breaks down in that book, and you can go and research this um, for yourself. Uh, there are, I think, three historians, non-Christian historians, um, within a few years of um, of Jesus' death that record Pharisees accusing the disciples of stealing the body of Jesus. And why that's significant is because it implies that there's no body in the tomb um, for them to present, you know, because even the Pharisees went to the tomb and are like, it's not there. The disciples must have stolen it. As, while you were talking, I looked it up. So it's The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary R. Habermas and nice. Michael R. Lincona. So there you go. That's the that's the book. Yeah, it's really great. Um, yeah, definitely. So so those are just two important points to understand in, in understanding why you believe what you believe is um, just these two points, something that almost every historical scholar believes today um, is that for whatever reason, um, women went to the tomb of Jesus and found it empty. Um, and that's really significant. Um, continuing on um, with the story. Uh, yeah. Um, they discovered the tomb. 
um, was empty. They were greeted by an angel who explains to them what happened. They run back and they tell the 11 apostles. The 11 don't believe them, probably because of the confusion of the whole uh, event and because probably of the woman thing. Um, but Peter actually does go and check it out um, and just to see what is going on. And he is just as confused, um, which implies that he doesn't necessarily believe in the resurrection just yet, but he is like, what happened to the body? Um, it then goes on, you read about uh, Cleopas and one of the other disciples who is unnamed at this point. They were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus and they are met by Jesus on the road. Um, and though it says they were kept from recognizing him. Um, and Jesus in disguise asked them what they were talking about. And they proceeded to tell him about the worst weekend in history, um, in the history of mankind. And he actually ends up explaining to them how all of the prophets before them had, had told exactly what was going to happen. Um, and if you're a post Pentecostal student of the old Testament, we know that to, to absolutely be true. Um, this is what the, the prophet spoke of. Um, but Evan, I do like, uh, though, how you describe Cleopas as the, the biggest villain in the Bible for not writing down what Jesus had spoken to him. Yep. Just he's, he attends the greatest Bible study in the history of the world and is like, I don't need to record this. Yeah. What a jerk. Yeah. It's a bummer. Um, it, it really is a bummer, but, uh, I do think it's a genuine question that a lot of people have. Um, why didn't Jesus just make it super easy to believe in the resurrection? Um, it would make it a lot easier to convince people. And we touched on this a little bit earlier in the study, but, um, Jesus did address this in his, in his teaching back in, in Luke 16, 31, um, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, uh, and if you have this question, I, I just encourage you to go and read that parable and meditate on it. Um, the story is in short, a rich man died and is in hell in agony and looks up and sees Abraham and asks Abraham to send someone back from the dead to warn his brothers of the judgment of God that he's experiencing. And Abraham replied in quote, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And while that's hard for us to hear when we wonder why Jesus didn't appear to every single person on the planet um, and, and reveal himself as the Messiah, he's already addressed that in his teaching um, that even if somebody come back, came back from the dead, that's not what it takes for a person to believe. Um, the story goes on and Jesus reveals his identity to those two. They are amazed and he discovers, uh, and then he disappears from in front of them. Very mysterious. Those two go back and talk to the other disciples and he appears before them. Also very mysterious. Um, but the story does stress that he has a body, that he isn't a ghost, that people touch him. Um, and that's really important just because there is, um, there is a group of people that believe today that uh, the post, um, resurrection appearances of Jesus were in spirit and he didn't actually have a physical body. So that's an important note to make. And that heresy starts very early as well. Very early. Yeah. You, you see, that's what, uh, when you get to the later epistles, like the ones written by the later ones written by Paul and the ones written by John and, and Peter, they're, mm -hmm. they're clearly talking about that as a, uh, and, and I think the Hebrews addresses it as well, that there's, there's an issue with people starting to believe that Jesus was just spirit and not, and not man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is one more note I wanted to bring up in this chapter. I've known for basically my whole thinking life, at least, um, that the disciples were sent out by Jesus to preach the gospel. And for so long, the gospel was this very vague idea to me. Um, and I, I knew that they went out to preach it, but I, I've, I've wondered, like, what is it exactly that they were saying to these people? Um, and at the end of this chapter, it's put so plainly. Um, and if you go back, it's all throughout the teachings of the entire book, of the entire Bible. Um, and that's the idea of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and I think we are really good at talking about the grace and the free gift of the new covenant 
um, that we talked about earlier. But in my experience, we haven't been really good at talking about uh, repentance. Um, and I think that could be why we have so many Christ claiming people who believe in the resurrection, but live lives that don't comply with Christ's teachings. Um, because what he taught was repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, it's what the prophets taught. It's what John the Baptist taught when he was in the wilderness. Um, and it's what Jesus taught from the moment of his ministry after he gets baptized by John and then goes out to be tempted. Um, he says he goes around teaching, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, and I would just, I would just challenge this. Is, this is really challenging thing to, to end on for the, for a celebration of the resurrection and the free grace that God is, has extended through Christ. But I just challenge ourselves um, the, and maybe a believer who's listening um, and maybe doing things that you probably know you shouldn't. Um, and maybe you have good intentions and, and trust in the freedom that Christ has given us. But I just encourage you that um, repentance is central to what Christ preached. Yeah, and it, it kind of gets at the, um, the idea of the book of James where yeah. it's this, um, I can't think of how, it's faith, faith without works is dead. Yeah. Um, and the idea there is if you say that you have faith in Jesus, um, but your life doesn't show any ev evidence of that, that's probably evidence that the underlying faith isn't even there to be real uh, yeah. in the beginning. But yeah, like you said, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of laying down our sin before the Lord um, and, and, and striving to put those things to death, not because it's what's going to save us, but because we know that God has saved us. Yeah. Um, as a bit of a side note, I grew up in a church that was a lot more reserved in worship. And it was to the point where it almost, um, it almost felt like if you expressed emotion um, through worship that you were disengaging with the, 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 like, the knowledgeable side of Christianity and you were kind of giving into the, the crazy spiritual like, stuff that was happening. That's what I grew up in. And it wasn't until I was older and really started diving into what I believed. And I, and I realized if if I, if we really believe what we believe and that doesn't invoke an emotional response from us, we probably don't believe, or we yeah. probably don't understand what we're believing. And it's the same thing, um, with works. If you accept the grace, um, that an infinite God has given you and you don't want to serve and live in his infinitely better kingdom, you probably don't, um, you probably don't believe and understand what he's saying. Yeah. Two kind of core memories for me that, uh, that came from one person I know and one person I don't know, but I remember listening to a, a Timothy Keller sermon and he like opened up one of them because I'm, I'm assuming they just sang Amazing Grace. Uh, and he's like, I, I feel like you can tell the maturity of a Christian by how emotional they get while singing Amazing Grace. Yeah. And basically his point was like, that is like, how real is it to you? Yeah. Um, and then the worship pastor here, um, the last one before, before Hunter, his name was Jordan. Um, and he had, uh, I remember this moment where he just like, he started like laughing and then just kind of like dancing around and then got, and you could tell like a couple of people were just like, like looking a little bit odd. Yeah. Uh, and he's went back up to the mic. He's like, yeah, that was kind of weird. Um, but if you knew what God saved me out of, you'd be dancing too or something like oh, that. Yeah. But basically his point was just like, like you have no idea. And then like how, how it was real for him in that moment. So that's yeah. always stuck out to me. Um, all right, well, let's jump into the book of Acts, which is the sequel to the book of Luke. So it's the gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles is the, uh, the kind of official title of both. Um, and just like the gospel of Luke, it begins to a dedication to Theophilus. Um, all we know about Theophilus is the dedications of the books, but it, you can read between the lines and it, it seems to me pretty clear um, that he's a rich man who is financing these ventures of Luke. So he's paying for the trips that Luke is taking, the interviews, all those different things. So that because Theophilus wants there to be an orderly account 
of the life of Jesus and also what's been happening in the, uh, in the early church. So uh, Acts chapter one, starting in verse one, this is kind of the introduction to the whole book. It says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, and that would be referencing the gospel of Luke, uh, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taking up to heaven and after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things regarding the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit uh, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? But he said to them, it is not for you to know the periods of time or appointed times which the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. Um, I love that. That Acts 2 or 1 8 is like Man. just a great, it's a great picture of, so we're, we're, a, we're a Pentecostal denomination, so we believe <laughs> that the Holy Spirit is, is active today. Um, and I think it's a really great framing of why we seek after the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because I think sometimes it can get this really unhealthy picture of like, because they're cool or whatever it is. Um, but the idea here is like, why do we speak? We, speak so, we, we seek these gifts so that we can be empowered to do the ministry of the gospel and mm -hmm. to tell people about Jesus. And I think sometimes we can lose, we can lose, um, we can lose sight that that is what's happening here. And Jesus is saying that you're, you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. And then you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go out to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the remotest part of the earth. So there you go. Uh, Luke picks up after that point with the disciples having just watched Jesus ascend into heaven. Uh, and you kind of get this picture that they're all just like jaws dropped to the floor and just <laughs> completely zoned out <laughs> looking up at the sky. Um, because literally some angels come up and tell like, I would, my paraphrase, like, cut it out. Like, yeah. He's he's gone. Like, it's go back to Jerusalem. So they kind of have to be almost like, almost slapped out of it of of the what they're. And, and in fairness, um, if you just watch someone like yeah. ascend into heaven, it's I, I completely get just being locked in on that moment for a little bit and trying to process what you just saw. Uh, the eleven remaining disciples, remember Judas at this point is uh, Judas is dead. Um, they go to the room where they are staying, uh, the upper room, if you're wondering where that term comes from, that's where it is. Uh, and then Peter declares that they must choose one of Jesus' disciples to take the place of Judas as a member of the inner circle of 12. Um, and we've talked about this a few times, but it's a reminder that the 12 disciples are not the only disciples of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, we, we kind of sometimes think that they are, like we imagine Jesus traveling around with a group of 12 people. Um, no, Jesus traveled around with a pretty big group of people who were his disciples the entire yeah. time. Because even in this chapter, Peter says, it needs to be someone who has been with us the whole time, which means that whenever that kind of official beginning point of Jesus' ministry was, this both Matthias and Barsabbas um, were with them the entire the entirety of the time. So the the twelve is kind of this inner circle that Jesus created and appointed as apostles. So they're kind of the the first among among equals. They're the they're the leaders of this mm -hmm. movement. And then there's the even tighter group of three, which is uh, Peter, James, and John, who Jesus takes with him to kind of go see the the extra special, like the transfiguration and being with him at Gethsemane and all those different things. Uh, and so anyways, Peter thinks it's important to pick someone else to take the place of Judas so that there's 12. Obviously, there's a lot of symbolism there with the 12 mm -hmm. tribes of Israel. There's 12 apostles. 
Uh, and so they cast lots between two men. There's one named Joseph, who is also called Barsabbas and Justice, so he has many nicknames, and then Matthias, who doesn't have any nicknames. Uh, <laughs> but the lot falls on Matthias, uh, and he is chosen. So we don't, we've never heard about Matthias before. We really don't hear about him after this, but when we get to heaven, he's going to be one of the 12. So we'll, we'll get to ask him about what all, what all happened on his missionary journeys. Yeah. Um, we pick up in Acts 2 then. Um, all of the disciples have been in that upper room spending time in prayer, again, praying um, for the Holy Spirit. And the day of Pentecost has arrived. Uh, the beginning of the rapid growth of the church starts right here. Um, the disciples were waiting in Jerusalem as instructed by Jesus. They were praying, and it says in verse 2, Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came in from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Uh, so what Jesus said that he was sending his helper to be with them um, and that it was even better for the disciples for Jesus to leave and to send his Spirit um, they're watching Jesus's words come true again, right in front of them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and start speaking in tongues. And just for a second, I want to focus on the tongues of fire. Um, all, all throughout the Bible, fire is often used as um, uh, a way to represent the actual presence of God in a location. Um, you think of the burning bush in Exodus, which we just talked about. You think of the pillar of fire that led them out of Egypt. Um, you think of God filling the temple after the Babylonian exile. Um, and, and so this, this fire coming and resting on the disciples um, is, is symbolizing God's actual presence resting on each of the apostles. I was also going to say Elijah on Mount Carmel is another one that comes oh, to yeah, mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The... Yep. Um, and it's important to realize that, that this is something that would never be possible um, at all in Judaism pre-Christ. The presence of God um, was in, only in uh, the, the Holy of Holies. Um, and if anyone unclean entered... Um, they would die, but here it, it's with each of them. And the, the implication of the tongues of fire are so many and so important. Um, it confirms the cleansing of the disciples through Jesus uh, because they didn't die with the presence of God. And it shows God being in the presence of his people. And this is so exciting to me. I love this so much because the whole Bible to this point is looking forward um, to this moment from the time that um, Adam and Eve uh, were sent out of the garden and God promised a way for his people to come back into his presence um, all throughout the laws and the prophets through Jesus. Um, it's now that all of that is brought to fulfillment and God can rest and be with his people. Again, not obviously in the way that we will be um, in heaven, but, but we're brought into um, a close proximity to the presence of God. Um, and it's so awesome. So we continue on. The Holy Spirit fills um, the apostles. They start speaking in different languages. People are amazed. Um, it, it's just important to know that also all throughout the Bible, um, if somebody's performing miracles, it's it's almost always God affirming um, the message of that person. Um, and so the 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 Bible is performing the 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 apostles performing these things is God affirming what they have to say. Yeah, like when the prophets are going in the Old Testament, the way that. God is showing that no, this is my true prophet. Yeah. One of the false prophets is there's there's miracles that are happening. Is the exactly, um, exactly. So that's all going on, and Peter preaches his first sermon here. And you expect you expect in our mindset today, you expect the first thing that you hear from Peter um, to be the exciting, uh, uh, amazing things that are happening. But he opens up with some really heavy words, actually. 
Um, he says in verse 22, um, after explaining that they weren't drunk uh, and they, that's, they were just speaking different languages to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, great. Um, he says in 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles. Again, a reference to um, God affirming Jesus through the miracles that were done. Um, Wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. So this is the first sermon um, that we hear in, in, um, in the New Covenant. Um, and he starts by telling them that, if, that they killed the Messiah, um, basically. And, and I don't know about you, if I'm there and I see these men performing all of these things and, and see God affirming um, what they're teaching, and they just told me that I killed the Messiah, my hope, I am freaking out. Um, and I'm wondering what, I, what I'm supposed to do. Um, and that's exactly what they ask. Peter goes on and explains to them how the prophets and the law have been fulfilled in Christ and how these things had to happen. Um, and it says in verse seven, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Um, and that should be our response, uh, all of us, when we hear in the fear of God and understand the, the, the gospel and what Christ did for us, that should be our question. Um, and they just ask, what do we do? And this is Peter's reply. Um, and, and you might be thinking in this moment, okay, this is it. All of the stuff that kind of came before with the prophets and stuff that was for those people. But now what Jesus is, or what Peter is going to say here, um, this applies to me now, but Peter tells them the exact same thing that the prophets said, the same thing that John the Baptist preached, the same thing that Jesus preached. In, in verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord, uh, the Lord our God will call. Um, and it just stands out to me, the message of God has been the same um, throughout all of history. And it's, it's return and come to me and follow me for the forgiveness of your sins. And we somehow got lost, I think, um, and, and think that all the prophets, um, calling, to, calling the people to repentance was, uh, was a different gospel than the one that we live in now. Um, but the message of repentance is the same. What's different is that we see clearly now what God, uh, being perfectly just can, can grant mercy to those who, who repent and follow him. And because God is um, an infinite, perfect being, as I was saying earlier, he's an infinite, perfect being. Any sin against him is infinite. Um, and that sin is, sin is worthy of an infinite punishment. But because Jesus Christ is infinitely perfect, um, we have an infinite pardon from God. Um, and so the, the question for us should still be, what do we do? And the answer has been the same. And this just amazes me throughout the whole Bible. And that is repent and be baptized. And I don't know I don't know why this stood out to me so strongly. Um, this not not just in this study, but just throughout this whole year. It's like, what was Jesus actually going around saying to people? And it was the same thing that the prophets were saying: was was repent, the kingdom of God is here. The baptism part's new, I guess, but yeah, the, yeah, repe- the yeah. repent part stays. Um, I mean, isn't that yeah? Isn't that just kind of one of the major messages of the whole of the Bible is that uh, we're sinful and we yeah. need to repent, and our only hope is is turning to God. So. 
Yeah. No, I think it's a really, it's a really great observation. Uh, we're going a little bit long today, but honestly, like it's hard. You can't do the crucifixion <laughs> resurrection without, without like really focusing in on it. So sorry about that listeners. Hopefully, hopefully you've been enjoying it. Uh, but we'll wrap up the new Testament here, uh, with our last days reading. This is Acts chapter three. Uh, and I'll go, I'll go, I'll pick up the pace here a little bit for, uh, for the last chapter and also Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, but after Peter and John, after this, Peter and John are walking by the temple when they come across a lame man. And by that, I don't mean uncool. I mean that he can't walk. Uh, and he is begging, he's begging for alms. Uh, they don't have silver or gold to give, but what they, they do have something else. And this is where we get the really famous silver and gold. I do not have, but what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth get up and walk. Uh, and and it happens. And so you see in this moment, kind of the, uh, it, it's like you, Nathan just talked about, um, God uses miracles to affirm ministry. Mm-hmm. And so you see now that the disciples are walking and doing the same miracles that Jesus did when he was here. Um, and we had that before, but remember it was a specific moment of Jesus being like, okay, I'm empowering you now go out and do miracles and then come back. And you don't really see the disciples themselves doing the miracles after that. It, it, it goes mm-hmm. kind of goes back to Jesus. So now it's almost like, uh, I don't know. It's it's like a their powers have been unlocked. It's a really lame way to say it. But like not their power. <laughs> it's got, level fuck. Yeah, exactly. Uh, God is working through them as a, as a blessing for their ministry. Uh, and so after seeing this miracle, understandably the crowds begin to gather, and so Peter preaches the gospel once again. Uh, I'm not going to highlight too much of this because it kind of he kind of just it's a condensed version of the sermon he just preached in Acts chapter two. He's hitting a lot of the same points. Um, he does include this interesting point, which I don't believe was in the, in Acts chapter two about a prophecy from Moses. And he says, this is Acts chapter three, starting mm-hmm. in verse 22. Uh, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your countrymen to him. You shall listen regarding everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant of God ordained with your fathers saying to Abraham and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God raised up his servant from, uh, for you first, and then sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Um, and so here he's pulling back to an even earlier prophecy. Moses is kind of, I guess you, I guess you would call him the first prophet of, of Israel. Um, and so we're t- we, a lot of the messianic prophecies we talk about are Isaiah and Jeremiah mm-hmm. and Micah and, and, and a lot later in, in history. But Peter here is pulling, he's pulling out the big guns. Yeah. Uh, he's pulling out Moses and he's saying, we'll get to this verse eventually because he's, he's quoting Moses directly. Um, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your, from your countrymen and to him you shall listen. And, and mm-hmm. what Peter is saying is like, hey, we've seen this be fulfilled. It's, that's Jesus. Yeah. And just to point out all of the other prophets who have come before them, they didn't listen. So we know that it wasn't any of the Most, previous prophets. I I joked last year about uh because there are there are some prophets they listen to, but it's post exile. Yeah. So uh, it's like yeah, it's yeah, once yeah. you get to yeah. like Haggai and Zechariah, and I, I I joked last year about I I imagine um when they prophesy and Israel finally after all these centuries listens to them, I just imagine like all of the rest of the prophets up in heaven looking down and just be like, come on, <laughs> like, where was this when I was telling you Jerusalem was about to be destroyed? But it is what it is. But yeah, you, you know, you're right. It's and and unfortunately, Jesus, who is kind of the final and, and the greatest prophet, um, a lot of people don't listen to him still. So, yeah. and that's kind of that's not to end the New Testament on a bummer note, but that's where we wrap up today. And that's where our job starts. There you go. I, I love it. All right. Well, next week we'll talk about the uh, the reaction to what Peter yeah. and John just said. But that'll be that'll be next week. 
Uh, for now, let's take a quick moment and we'll talk about the Psalms and Proverbs that we read this week. Okay, so we had three Psalms and a proverb, this, or not a proverb, but a chapter of Proverbs this week. Uh, psalm 10 is a psalm asking for the Lord's protection from the wicked, which in fairness is like most of the Psalms, So, but it comes up a lot. Um, it simultaneously praises God for his power and his majesty, and it chastises the wicked for their deeds. Uh, we'll, we read Proverbs 2, which uh, once again states the importance of searching after wisdom, and it reminds us that true wisdom comes from God. Uh, it's also a reminder of the fate of the wicked who do not seek the wisdom of God. And so you're going to notice like Proverbs kind of the way it goes is it has a couple chapters of setup, basically just saying wisdom's important. I need you to understand what I'm about to tell you is important. Uh, and then there's a long kind of um, sexual morality section of Proverbs. And then, it, and then it goes into like the most famous portion of Proverbs, which is just kind of um, I always say that you, you don't don't just take a verse of the Bible and only look at that, except that section of Proverbs is like the one place where you can, where it's like, yeah, you don't need the context of what's around it. You can kind of just like pick out bits of wisdom. Uh, and then it ends obviously with the famous um, Proverbs 31, uh, where, or I guess there's a couple chapters where it's the the mother of the king is kind of sharing her wisdom and stuff like that. So I didn't need to give you a breakdown of all of Proverbs there, but <laughs> suffice to say, Proverbs chapter two is a reminder that wisdom is important. Uh, Psalm 11 is a short God praising uh, the Lord for being a refuge and defense. And to be honest, I love it. And we're just going to read it because it's really short. So uh, it says, in the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountains? For behold, the wicked bend the, bent, the, wicked bend the bow. They have set their arrow on the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord in his holy temple, the Lord's throne. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the sons of mankind. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and his soul hates the one who loves violence. He will rain coals of fire upon the wicked, and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will see his face. Um, and so again, I just think it's like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting passage because it gives us the simultaneous mercy of God also with his wrath. Uh, and I think sometimes we focus on one over the other yeah. and it, it's a reminder that both of those things exist. Uh, and then Psalm 2012, sorry, uh, Psalm 2012, Psalm 12 addresses a very similar theme to Psalm 10. It's deliverance from the wicked. Uh, and in this Psalm, David asks for God, God's punishment against the dishonest and the treacherous. So it's kind of a more specific look into uh, who some of those wicked are. All right. Well, that does it for our Psalms and Proverbs. And we're going to talk a little bit for a second about what we learned today. Uh, yeah, I, my my application for the the whole day, both the Old and the New Testament that we were reading throughout this week, um, is that the the message of God has been the same the whole time. Um, and I think that's a really beautiful thing. So as we're reading through this this beautiful book of um, Israel and his families as promised through God, they're, they're receiving this blessing. Um, the message to that people has been repent and come to me and I will forgive you and love you and be your God. And we finally see that in fulfillment, um, in the new Testament. Yeah. For, for me, the, it comes back to the story of the, the widow who drops the two coins in, in, into the offering and just the idea of giving in the midst of our need and not just in our excess. Um, and I think sometimes, and I'm, and I'm guilty of this too, like sometimes we can think, um, if I just had more, if I just had more yeah. money, if I just had more time, if I just had more of, you know, whatever it is, then I, I could give more. Uh, 
to the Lord. And I, I, I don't think it's true. <laughs> I think it's like, what, what it is, is it shows, um, like Jesus says, if, if you're faithful in the little things, um, that shows that you'll be faithful with much. And I think it's a reminder for us today to, uh, to strive to be like the widow, to strive to be like the church in Macedonia and not, and not be so concerned with what we don't have, but think how can we um, further the kingdom of God here on earth with what we have right now. Uh, well, with that being said, we have one more portion or section today. Uh, we had a question come in, so we're going to take a second and answer that. Okay, the question says, the end of Acts indicates that Paul lived in Rome for two years in his own expense, receiving people and preaching. I've always read this as kind of a house arrest, but when the preachers talk about the le- the later letters from Paul, he is in prison uh, and it's and is in really despicable conditions. You then remarked that Luke would have documented his death or change of circumstances if it happened before the end of Acts. Is there more to the lore surrounding the end of Paul's life that may further help the dating of the latter letters? Um, okay, so... I looked into this a little bit. the 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 most concrete evidence that we have, as far as the uh, the date of the death of Paul and how he dies, is by an early church historian named Eusebius. Um, and he's obviously collecting records that are now lost to history, but he's putting it all together. He lives about two hundred years after Paul is killed, so he's born in about the two sixties A.D. Give or take. Um, and so it's that's pretty reliable when you're considering historical sources, especially because it's not like a super outlandish thing to be like, oh yeah, he died around this time under this emperor. Like it's not necessarily something you necessarily yeah. make up. Um, and so we that's where we get the date from. The rest of it, as I was looking into, it seems like it's kind of there's there's a vague category of things that's just kind of called church traditions. And what that means is like we don't really understand when it started, but eventually as we move forward in history, that's just kind of a thing that the church believes. Um, I want to be I want to be clear. Sometimes church traditions are a little bit like you'll and you just read the different ones. Sometimes they're a little bit out there and you're like, okay, this is probably not something that happened, but maybe it did. Um, but that just because something is a church tradition doesn't mean it's not true. Um, and the thing I want to talk about was there was, um, there's a story that I, I just found fascinating, but there's a, well, I guess I won't say what it is. So I'm, I'm going to tell the story and then we'll talk about it. So in the 1600s, Portuguese missionaries were making their way to India, uh, because they wanted to spread the gospel, which is, which is a great thing. Um, as they're, as they're making their way through India, they come across a group of Christians, which is not something that you would have expected because yeah. again, they're going into a land that for all they know is like completely unreached by the gospel. Um, and they're not Christians who are like, oh yeah, there was a group of missionaries that came by a few years ago and we, we met them. Like, no, they've been, they've been Christians for a super long time. Um, and the, the evidence does seem to suggest that it, it, it so there's a church tradition that Thomas, one of the disciples, made his way to India, and that's where he and that's where he's killed. But he starts a church in India. Um, obviously, we can't verify if it actually is the Apostle Thomas or anything it is. But this early church community, this early Christian community, has the tradition among themselves as well that Thomas is the one who came over to them. And all of the evidence points that even if it wasn't Thomas, it was around that time. It was mm-hmm. it was within a few centuries. Of uh, which in historical dating is about as close as you can get sometimes mm-hmm. uh, within a few centuries of Christ is when this church community is founded. And so all, all of that to say, just because something is a tr- church tradition doesn't mean that it's automatically not true. Um, you just kind of have to test it, look at evidence and see what it is. Um, but that's kind of the, ta- the case with Paul. I think the, f- the idea that Paul was executed by Nero in the late 60s AD is a pretty safe yeah. 
that's a pretty safe bet. Some of the other things about Paul that we read are maybe it, um, they could be embellished or whatever it is, but I don't see any major reason to date um, the the death of Paul as being later or earlier than it's usually said by Eusebius. So I don't, Nathan, I don't know if you have any extra thoughts no, there or not. No, that's fine. Ended up well. All right. Well, on that note, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. We have a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. 